Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Stamps.com, Wondrium, Liquid IV, Squarespace, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. In The Scientific American, September 10th, 1910, Charles F. Holder writes... Many years ago, a strange stone resembling a meteorite fell into the valley of the Yaqui, Mexico, and the sensational story went from one end to the other of the country that a stone-bearing human inscriptions had descended to the earth. Charles Fort, The Book of the Damned, illustrated, page 154. Many of you will have heard of Charles Fort. Others may not. Some may not recognize the Fort name, but have heard the term Fortian. We should have done this episode a long time ago. But it was perhaps our most daunting task, not due to its complexity, but the desire to do it right. Maybe we also shouldn't have put the word supernatural in the title. Even though Mr. Fort wrote that word in one of his books, biographer Jim Steinmeier quotes him as having said, It has no place in my vocabulary. In my view, it has no meaning or distinguishment. If there never has been, finally, a natural explanation of everything, Everything is, naturally enough, the supernatural. No person, living or dead, has been more of an influence on the genesis of Astonishing Legends. Charles Ford was influencing us both before we even realized he was at the wheel of the fantastic stories that drifted into our awareness as younger men. He suffered greatly for his work and struggled to survive during a brutal economic environment and the birth of the Industrial Age. He had every reason to give up getting noticed. He turned his back on a sure thing when he set aside the opportunity to work for his father's successful business. Then he clawed his way into an inner circle of significant notoriety among well-respected authors and philosophers of his day, even though some regarded him with derision. At least they regarded him. Were his ideas so crazy? Was he serious about his endeavors? Or was he a new kind of thinker? Or a skillful satirist playing a part? Whatever the case, the world not only still talks about him today, but his ideas guide not only our show, but now dozens of podcasts like it, entire networks of TV, infamous radio shows, movies, and fiction worldwide. Who was Charles Ford? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. To this day, it has not been decided if I am a humorist or a scientist. Charles Boy Ford, from his book, Wild Talents. Join us tonight for the first part of a very special series on the supernatural father of our show, Charles Fort. <laughs> That we are, my friend. This one has been a bit of a revelation for me. Why is that? 
I well, I I don't I don't know what I was expecting, but I found uh, Mr. Ford to be infinitely more fascinating <laughs> than I thought he was going to be. I will wholeheartedly agree with you there, sir. I think the revelation here, as probably many people will find as they travel this journey with us to find out who this man really was, is that it's not just the crazy stories. I know we're all hoping for some wild stories, and you'll get some of those, of course, but we're going to get to know what kind of guy spends his life digging these up. <laughs> Why is he interested in these? Yeah. What kind of a man does this? And that's the surprising part is I thought that from the little I had read about him was that, you know, maybe he's a little, uh, let's say, preoccupied, obsessed with these facts and figures and digging into them. But he had a pretty dramatic childhood and early adulthood, and he was a lot more adventurous than I gave him credit for previously. That was surprising. Yeah. And also for me, it was a little like looking in the mirror. So uh, <laughs> as to my motivations anyway. Right. A big strapping six foot tall, burly, you know, fisticuffs kind of guy, tough journalist. And uh, yeah. Well, I don't know about all that. Part, okay. Just in terms of my motivations to cover the stories we cover. You were right, sir. We both uh, share that same sense of optimism, I think, in finding out answers or if not getting answers, at least collecting these stories. And as I've said before, maybe asking better questions about them trying to form and see patterns. And I think that's kind of what keeps us going. And at the end of it, we're still interested in them. I couldn't agree more, man. Well, folks, just a couple of quick notes before we get started tonight. Firstly, we'd like to congratulate Miss Miranda Merrick on reaching over 2 million visitors to hear her late night stories at the Midnight Library. Yes, congratulations indeed to both her and Mr. Darling. Folks, if you haven't heard the Midnight Library, now is the time to catch up on it. A new season is starting on April 10th and it just keeps getting better and better. The Midnight Library is an Astonishing Legends production, but it is very different from this show in all the right ways. So mm. if you haven't checked it out, find and subscribe to The Midnight Library wherever you get your podcasts. You'll regret it if you don't. <laughs> There's probably going to be a, a horrible spell placed upon you. Uh, well, <laughs> we'd also like to remind everyone that we're doing a Patreon-exclusive show called The Junk Drawer that runs every week. Our main show is dark. So if you miss us, on the weeks you can't hear us here, head on over to patreon.com slash astonishinglegends where you can access that show and hear us year-round. One last note, we're looking for a seasoned freelance story producer and writer who is capable of researching and coalescing stories for our show in the style that so many of you are familiar with. If you think you might be that person or know someone who is, mm -hmm. send us an email at astonishingcontact at gmail.com and we'll get back to you. Also, here is Scott's cell phone number. Call him day or night, anytime, <laughs> right. just to chat. You don't even have to be that don't person. That. Just yeah. he. Oh no, I'm, no. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll I'm let me just. <laughs> I'll just put a line through this. Sorry, just strike through. Here we go. Okay, I'm surprised again in this cold open. Surprised for the second time here. Well, seriously, we're looking for somebody with experience in investigative journalism and research who's familiar with our show a little bit. That would be helpful, but not totally necessary. But to know the kind of format that we do and has a body of work that demonstrates how they could help us expand our content offerings, I always point to somebody, two of my favorites, Radio Lab and This American Life, of course, two NPR type shows, but they really get the elements of a sometimes a, a very touching and fantastical, yeah. yeah, storytelling, all those elements and know how to boil those down into something usable. And that's what we're looking for here. So again, if that's you or someone you know, reach out to us at astonishingcontact at gmail.com or just show up at Scott's house. 
Okay, folks, we got a great show for you tonight. So get ready to meet the man who inspired us to start Astonishing Legends. But before we get into the background of Mr. Fort, we want to mention some of our sources right out of the gate here, which we'll touch on again as this two-part series goes on. One of the really great books that we found along the way is a biography called Charles Fort, The Man Who Invented the Supernatural. That's by Jim Steinmeier, published in 2008 by Jeremy P. Tarcher uh, slash Penguin Publishing. You know, Mr. Steinmeier lives not too far from me. I could go bother him. <laughs> I was thinking about it like, you know, but I we certainly wouldn't do that. But I would love to talk with him about Charles Fort. It's just so fascinating. And this book is terrific. It's a really a great read. I especially enjoyed the part about his growing up and all the comments on that. That alone is a great coming of age story. But just the way he lays it all out and his insights and how he presents the information, because it, it is kind of difficult what Fort wrote and how he wrote it and what he intended. And I think Mr. Steinmeier does a great job of making it accessible and understandable because what he was getting at is that Fort himself may have been teasing his readers a bit. I think that's probably true. And accessible is a good word. It's accessible. It's compelling. It is a really great read. And it works perfectly for Steinmeier, who's actually an accomplished magician and also uh, has published <laughs> many, many books. We'll have a link to his bookstore on his own website, but you can get all his books on Amazon as well, including uh, one of his most popular ones is called Hiding the Elephant. seems like there's a lot of books yeah. about illusions. I don't know if he's giving away secrets or not. He's probably no. not breaking that code. But it's another reason for me to go bother him at his house and, and force <laughs> him to, I won't leave until you show me some tricks. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really amazing. And his perception though, I guess his background makes the book a really great read. Mm. We'll also be referring to a book by Damon Knight, who wrote a biography of Charles Fort called Prophet of the Unexplained. That came out in 1922. It was published by Doubleday. Yeah, that's considered one of the preeminent biographies, of course. But as we know, stuff written in the 20s and around the turn of the 20th century, there's language to it, as we yes. will see with Fort's own writing, which is great, but it's a different style. It's a little harder to follow. So we're probably going to hug the curves a little closer to Mr. Steinmeier's book, but yes. they're both great. Yeah. And and yes. didn't you just get a copy? Actually, you got two copies of two different titles of Fort's books, didn't you? Well, I have a digital copy of Book of the Damned. That's right. That's right. Which is very hard to find older versions. And then I also did acquire and apparently found out afterwards, snatched it out from under Mr. Richard Haddam, <laughs> a copy of Lowe. Oh, L-O, yeah. exclamation yeah. point, which is considered one of the primary works of his most influential works. And right. that's the fourth in the series. And we'll be referring to all four of these books at times. Mm -hmm. Wild Talents, Book of the Damned, which was actually the first one, New Lands, and Low. How we know about his childhood is that Fort, in his 20s, wrote an autobiography, a, a memoir of his childhood, which was both exciting and difficult and adventurous and extremely formative to him. That was called Many Parts, and it was unpublished, and not all of it survives intact. I, I think there's chunks missing, but what does remain gives you a really good insight in Fort's own language. But I think what he described was very accurate, but some of his perceptions and feelings about it, you don't really know if he was really feeling those emotions, although I think it's very genuine because it was very personal. and was also, there's a bit of PTSD with his childhood, I yeah. believe. and. Uh, so it was, uh, like I said, very formative, traumatic, but also made him who he was. And that story alone, I, I want to get into because I, I, I think it's fascinating. 
it also reminds me of any great coming of age story like we've just gotten we're talking about this if anyone in school has had to read a tree grows in brooklyn or a separate piece i think that was john knowles it's like that kind of level to me it's just very iconic idyllic but also filled with a lot of torment and heartbreak as we've alluded to already in the cold open and the housekeeping this is a, a seminal topic for us it really represents the framework that we try to operate within knowingly and unknowingly since we started Astonishing Legends. And one of the things that we're going to be mentioning a lot tonight are several quotes by him. You know, we always have a quote at the opening of the show or did ever since we adopted that format several years ago. Fort, we've actually referred to several times over the years. The mm -hmm. first time we used one of his most popular quotes was actually episode 10 Hmm. of Astonishing Legends, The Kakowski Intruder. It was the opening quote for The Kakowski Intruder. And that <laughs> one is, people with a psychological need to believe in marvels are no more prejudiced and gullible than people with a psychological need not to believe in marvels. Yeah. That's a great line from him. And it represents our own position on how you should take these stories in that we share on our show. Many of them, we've covered many topics that he was the first person to cover, but we've also right. covered ones that we feel like he would be interested in at the very least. We obviously can't vouch for his bar of what's acceptable and what's not. We will talk a little bit about what he thought worked and what didn't, but mm -hmm. some of those criticisms are similar to ones that we've made with stories that we were a little incredulous about. Mm -hmm. I think that that's interesting. I do like this disposition, but you're going to hear us coming back to him and how he decided what fit into the wheelhouse of a story that was would later become known as Fortian or could be labeled as Fortian. Right. The uh, inspiration for the once held and revered fort made out of hospital foam that right. we used to <laughs> record right. in, which we called yes. Blanket Fortiana because uh, it was like a blanket fort, if people don't know. A lot of listeners who've been with us for quite a while, we've referred to it as such. But the idea was that uh, when we first started recording in Scott's converted garage guest house, we had, for sound dampening purposes, furniture pads, blankets. There you go, furniture yep. blankets. And he got big slabs of, I guess it's used for people in hospitals. They were medical mattresses. Yes. Like that had an egg crate shape to them. So I thought they would help dampen the sound, which they, they did, did a little yeah. bit, although I've since learned that the secret to foam that dampens sound is the density of the foam, right. which they did not have much density, but they still <laughs> helped a little bit. And it worked fine for us for what we needed. And that was the origin of blanket fort, of a blanket fort. And they're like, why not blanket fortiana? Blanket fortiana. And then once I moved east, we have blanket fortiana west, BFW. And now <laughs> I'm so far away. Yeah. I'm at Blanket Fortiana East, or BFE. Covering both uh, coasts of the nation. And the world at large. Well, we decided we want to tell this story in the order that made sense to us. And it, like anyone who eventually achieves success, the things that we know, for those of you who've heard of him, about Charles Fort, are based on where he wound mm -hmm. up. So we're going to start there. We're going to come back to his origin story, as they say in mm -hmm. the comic book world, in part two, because that's interesting as well. But we wanted to pick up with what made Charles Hoy Fort yeah. who he was as he became a writer. It's that whole question of nature versus nurture. What made the man him? What made Charles Fort Charles Fort? It's a combination of both, and it's quite curious. I would say that we identify with him, and a lot of people do, because of his approach to it, which we think is logical. But he's also more cynical than we are, I think. He comes at it from being a reporter going through the school of hard knocks as a kid, 
rough and tumble. And this guy was a scrapper. He was a fighter. He didn't care. He was carved out of wood by the actions and abuses of his father. And at some point he was like, I'm going to stick a finger into the eye of both spirituality and science equally doing the three stooges, the double eye poke where you defend with your, you know, you make a knife hand and to yeah, with the hand yeah, you and get the, to defend yourself from, nose. which is horrible. What an awful thing. But his thing was, <laughs> he didn't care. He was going to present what he found and he's going to ruminate on it, but he didn't care how you reacted to it. And he thought that some of these traditions, which cause people to say they're objective, but they're really subjective and there's really bias to it. He was going to present this and say, I think these ways that we think about this kind of stuff, which you can call nowadays high strangeness. Yes. We should look at this differently. Keel coined high strangeness, didn't he? From my reading of it, it's mentioned, yeah, he's often associated with that. I don't, you know, you never know if that's the first person who uttered it. It's hard no. to nail these things down, but yes. And John Keel is logically in the string of time. He's the next dot that you connect. He was the in our lifetimes version of Charles Fort, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. As we got into this, and as I started reading more on Mr. Fort, I started to reflect on a lot of things about why we even started the show. And I was trying to look back and think about, did I become aware of Mr. Fort because I became interested in these stories? Or did I become interested in the stories because Mr. Fort had already put them out there? Like he brought them into the light and then... I came along and got interested in them. This was for me. Mm -hmm. So, But these stories drew me in, the stories that he made famous. A, a good portion of them in the early days, the ones that stuck with me, were ones that he popularized, notably mm -hmm. in the Book of the Damned and Low, but the other books as well. And I didn't know where they came from when I heard about them. This was pre-internet, folks. You can look anything yeah. up now and try to figure out its origins. You can't always trust the first 10 links you come across. But eventually, <laughs> if you dig, you start to figure out where things started. When I was starting to take these stories into my own mind, I would have to say I was probably in high school and junior high, which would have been in the early 80s, the early and mid 80s. And yeah. the internet was not around for this kind of stuff back then. And right. so by the time we started doing the show, of course I knew his name, but truthfully, I was pretending to know a lot about him when we first mm -hmm. started out. <laughs> so thanks to some cursory research, I am now fully acquainted with who Charles Hoy Fort was. Mm -hmm. But Forrest, this is what I'm curious with you because you know, when we started out and when I look back on it, I decidedly was the rube compared to the amount of information that you had before we even got started. And that was part of the reason I wanted to start Astonishing Legends was because mm -hmm. I mostly wanted people to have to sit around and listen to all the inane, insane knowledge that you had about <laughs> Fortean events, even if I didn't know that's what they were called. So you tell me, when we started mm. Astonishing Legends in mm -hmm. 2014, what was your perception of Charles Fort? Well, I suppose like a lot of folks that are interested in it, I know the name, I hadn't read any biographies at that point of the guy. I just knew that like, well, he here is a guy that, again, I, I admired because I'm kind of the same nature, a collector of information, which is not always a good thing <laughs> because it could be a waste of time. We'll see if this was for him. A lot of people did say this is like, this is ridiculous. But when we get done here, you're going to now know where and why a lot of the stories you've suggested to us and stories we want to know more about came about because he put them in a compendium of sorts. He was a clearinghouse for these kinds of things. 
these stories appeared not just in the, the yellow journalism rags of the day, the newspapers and this and that, and people can scoff at those and certainly uh, well-deserved because as we'll see, it was uh, suspicious and he meant it to be that way of, of sort. It, in things like theater reviews, not what he was reporting, of course, he took it very seriously, but what I was going to say is that he also collected these stories from scientific journals of the day, bona fide sources, and he said, here they are in one place here's what I think it might be, here's how maybe we should think of them. But as I dove into this, the stories that we've all heard of frogs raining from the sky, blood raining from the sky, rocks the size of boulders, uh, just a single boulder coming from the sky. People know about this one, flakes of beef from the sky in Kentucky in 1876. I believe that's the Kentucky the meat, meat shower. shower. <laughs> yeah. The infamous meat shower, made right. famous by Charles Fort. Most people see this in the paper. It's like, ah, that's a laugh. Yeah. And they forget about them in 1876, at the time they happened. Nobody in 1879 probably remembers that unless you witnessed it. Right. And certainly the cataloging wasn't as good. So we owe it to Charles Fort to make collections of these clippings and bits of information and put them all together in these volumes, which, like I said, it's not just these things happen, as we'll discover with Fort. It's that, one, for me, the man is as much of the story as the events that happen. Yes, very well put. And like with Fort, one thing I've noticed is that these stories about uh, these strange events that get documented, either in a modern documentary or a book, it's not just the event themselves. It's also about the people experiencing them. And if it's a lifetime thing, like uh, like a great documentary we always talk about, uh, Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs. Yes, uh, Cristo Rapolo. Yeah, that came out in 2016. It's, it might be on uh, Netflix. It's it's worth watching. Yeah, it's a terrific story. And, and I think he follows us. Directed by uh, Justin Gar for people who are interested. Another one I just saw, I've been trying to get you to watch, is Jim was trying to contact UFOs. And that's on Netflix. It's only 16 minutes. Oh, yeah. It's a very touching story. What it's about is that, of course, <laughs> it's with maybe Hellier. There's no, yes, there's no goblins on film. But it's, it's a story about the process. And with these two cases... The curse doc, you actually see some strange things on tape, but really it's about the people because again, that's how we relate to these things. That's how we make sense of them. How did it affect us? And so in Fort's time, we're not going to know how it affected the people of the meat shower. It's just like, well, meat fell from the sky and it wasn't all over. It happened as with some of these other things, which is weird, what? strange <laughs> things falling from the sky, but in a, not all over the place in a small area. And then it happening again later in the same area. Have you seen that meme with Jeremy Clarkson where no. it'll be like some huge thing happened and then the next frame is just, anyway, you know, so back in the 1800s, yeah. you know, people had enough to contend with. It's right. like, we, we're, we're just trying to feed ourselves and stay alive <laughs> from day to day. And it's like, well, yeah, last week there was a meat shower. I don't know what I'm having for dinner tonight because all the meat that fell from the sky has gone bad. So what's next? <laughs> <laughs> Not just meat. In 1829, manna, if people are familiar with that yes. term in the Bible, the story goes, that's how God fed uh, his wandering people was something that kind of just formed, which you could eat or make into bread. And in 1829, a mysterious substance just kind of fell from the sky and was eaten by sheep. You could make it into flour. You can then make it into bread. And then there was a giant image of Gwyneth Paltrow with a huge pump, just goop coming down. <laughs> goop. And it's it's only $700 a scoop. What do you... Yeah, right, you know, right. Why not buy this up? It just weird things were... It was a marketing campaign. <laughs> Nowadays, yes, that's, that would be my first uh, suspicion. But it's... There's all kinds of strange things. The Devonshire footprints that happened 
we know about that. That's another famous one people have asked us to look into. We know of these things. They would have been recorded locally and passed down, and certainly other people would have remembered them, but we owe it to Charles Fort for putting them all in one place. And a lot of these great stories, and when we were growing up, like this is exactly the kind of stuff we would love to read because no one else is doing this. No one else takes it seriously. Yeah. And as we'll see with the reaction of his book, people thought like, why are you wasting your time with this baloney? <laughs> like notable writers of the time and journalists, like screenwriter Ben Hecht, loved the guy's writing. He just thought he was phenomenal. Others were just very dismissive, much like they take the paranormal these days anyway. So my point was that I knew of it. I didn't know all the connections. And I certainly didn't know something that I've come to appreciate just as much as the story of the man himself. And that comes full circle for us. And I, I want to say to, uh, for people who might think, oh, they're bearing the lead, get to the point with Charles Fort. <laughs> right. The point is Charles Fort is the point. He's the point of every episode of Astonishing yeah. Legends. His his approach, everything, it's the closest thing to what we do. And so when we're dissecting right. this along the way, that is the story here. Right. It is the man. And like what you're saying, what he brought to these stories, but like mm -hmm. you've also always said, and sometimes I forget when we're covering a particular topic, especially when it's some sort of personal experiences, this is as much about the experiencer as it is about what they experienced. Yeah. And the thing that we've learned from our show is a lot of sociological insight, not only into the people who say, well, no, look, I saw this, it happened. Right. And we're trying to decide, are they telling the truth or are they looking for fame? Are they trying to get rich off the Kentucky goblins, whatever they're doing? Or no, is it something different? And then sociologically, mm -hmm. the other thing that's super interesting to your point that you just made is how people react. Yeah. The people out there that listen to our show, there are, of course, folks that are just like, oh, yeah, they're right along with everything that's being said. There's other folks that are like, this is absolutely ridiculous. It's patently mm -hmm. absurd. I don't know how you can believe it. There's other folks who are like, these are a bunch of opportunists. They just want to be famous or they they want their 15 minutes of fame or they're trying to make money off this book or X, Y, or Z. And all of that and all those reactions, they all come in. We see it all. It funnels through the back yeah. door of our internet communication points and our social media platforms. And then we're at the front door funneling the story through to get that and see what comes back in. And in the right. end, after you do it for hundreds of episodes like we have and lots of other podcasts that are out there now, you start to get a big picture that's very fluid Mm -hmm. that allows you to, you know, figure out which way the tide's going and how to avoid getting beached as you get sucked into the marina or out to right. sea, whichever right. way you want to look at it. So I think that sociological component and the human component is as much a part of it as anything else. And going back to the series we just did on Puma Punku and part of what we were talking about with the difference in the archaeologists, and even though that first early archaeologist that went there, his theories were now discounted by the more scientific theories, Ford right. would love this, that have come along in the science, the longer time goes by, the mm -hmm. more it becomes unassailable. But then you're discounting the fact that that first archaeologist, Poznanski, lived on site for 40 years right. with the descendants of the people who built whatever it is at yeah. Pumapunku. Yeah. And so for us, you take all of that stuff together. You take the human component Right. Yes, people might lie. Yes, they might have misinterpreted something. But you take that in. You don't, just because there's a possibility of that doesn't mean you completely disregard everything that comes out of their mouth about their experience. Exactly. And so his view, I think, was actually going against people who are just so sure about it. Either, you know, and that yes. goes both ways. Either sure, it's something mystical and, and supernatural, a term he hated, 
Because <laughs> that's right. What's the difference? If all this stuff is part of nature, isn't it all just natural? Why is it any more super? We just doesn't happen very often. And so I'm not saying it was one thing over the other. We considered all the options, I think, in a 14 way. It's like, look, it maybe it was stone softening. I don't see any evidence for aliens, but who knows? I stand on the side of archaeology. And in this case, the side of mainstream archaeology doesn't say one or the other. It doesn't say stone softening. It doesn't say uh, geopolymers. And it doesn't say hammer and chisel and drills only or stone saws. It doesn't say that either. That is not the chisel theory or any one of those is not what mainstream archaeology is going with. Their conclusion is we don't know how this was made. We can't say right. any of these is, is one over the other. That's how we present stuff. It's like, look, these are all the possibilities. Just because we mention it doesn't mean that we're siding with it. We'll tell you what seems more likely to us. Yeah, you could have done this with one tool or the other, but what's the most efficient? What seems more likely to us? And that's just our logic. That's our speculation. We're presenters. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what Fort was. He was presenting this and he had some ideas that he would present in the book. But later in the same book, in different chapters, he seems to have abandoned some of those ideas. So the reader, as I said, when he he seems like he might be toying with you, yeah. I think you and I, what we've, uh, maybe what you're saying is that a lot of people ask us or they look to us for some kind of an opinion that they can neatly tuck away or we can direct them to, and then they can safely and comfortably put this aside. Well, I don't have to worry about that. The Devonshire footprints that happened in 1855 on February 8th in the snow, well, that was a prank balloon that was dangling a horseshoe. And it just happened to drift over fields and over uh, the, up the sides of buildings and top of rooftops. It wasn't the devil's hoof prints. But it's like, why does it rain frogs from the sky? Well, the most, uh, one of the likely explanations was that a whirlwind sucked up tadpoles from a pond and they whisked them into the sky and they actually grew to maturity. <laughs> I don't know how long you this would happen, but they grew to maturity or the frogs themselves were were whipped up into the sky and then rained down in a specific area. And then, okay, there you go. That's an explanation I can live with. That makes sense. Let's move on. With Fort and his research, he said, well, hold on. If that's the case, why isn't there other debris that was associated with the pond raining down? Leaves, twigs, pieces of moss, lily pads, whatever it was. Why is it just frogs? Right. Why isn't there water missing from some farmer's pond? As he says, uh, you know, if somebody has their pond disappear, you would have heard from them, at least in the local right. paper where it was reported in the first place. You know, Mr. Farber Johnson reports pond missing right. <laughs> after right. a windstorm. He says, you don't get that. And so he's asking the questions which are inconvenient. And he was meant to be inconvenient, I think, to people who would dismiss this stuff. And uh, a point of interest for people who are just interested. Let's hear about this. Let's wonder. Let's keep that wonder going. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. G'day, this is Sean, and you're listening to Legendary Astonish. Ah, uh, I mean, astonishing legends. Let's go back to Scott and Forrest for more. There's a quote at the beginning of chapter 20 of Steinmeier's book, which I'm assuming is a fort quote, but I couldn't find an attribution for it. But uh, the other chapter headings, they are. This one is similar to our part of our mantra mm-hmm. here. And the, and the quote is, the interpretations will be mine, but the data will be for anybody to form his own opinions. Right. On. That's what we try to do too. We give you the interpretations, but right. when I look back at my own exposure and what got me into wanting to do this show and everything, I think probably the stories that I came across that initially sparked my interest, I came across them because they were stories that Charles Fort had made famous. Right. And I didn't even realize that they had come from him. I didn't know what their source was. And he's not really the source. Yeah. He found them. Right. They had their own sources, but without him, I might not have ever known about them. And, you know, we're all kindred spirits, though. All the people that are listening to this show, we don't own this fascination. Charles Fort's work would eventually develop a large, almost cult-like following. There's people around him who developed societies, for lack of a better word, that were ostensibly dedicated to his philosophies and ideas. But as we'll find out, they were a lot of times infusing their own personal beliefs into those things. And Fort would laugh about it. But he also seemed to just let it exist while he quietly watched from the sidelines, like Lloyd Dobler. (laughs) But before we get into where things got to, how do we describe who and what Charles Hoyfort is? Let's start with a, like, a little bit of background. Like you said, Forrest, I want to come back in part two, right. I think, to the childhood, because right. that's its own thing. And tonight I want to talk about more his writer phase. Yeah. Let's give a little bit of background so people understand who he was, how old he was, the time period that he lived in. As we talk about later, about what he actually endured and the the stories that I I said would make a great novel, (laughs) make a great coming-of-age story, you'll see why he is the way he is. And maybe you can identify with some of it because those translate into modern times. Certainly, there are still, sadly, abusive people out there. Or a lot of these people that we talk about had trying childhoods which, and it could have been a long time illness. We've talked about that before. Something that keeps them in their bed and room and confined and all they do is study and read. Certainly a lot of the people that we mention in this field are what they call an autodidact. Oh, yeah. Somebody who uh, teaches themselves, they have a focus on usually a certain topic or subject uh, or, or field of knowledge and they focus on that and just read a lot of books and develop their own conclusions. And Fort was one of those. He did not so great in school. Certain subjects, yes. And he loved history, but only in certain romantic eras, not everything. And he was terrible at math. <laughs> I certainly associate with that. And so, yeah, he struggled in school, but he definitely had interests and he was very clever. But there was a lot of give and take with that. He was also very socially awkward to girls his own age. He wanted to woo them. He didn't know how to impress them. It was much easier for him to talk to older girls or older women because he was uh, alleviated of that pressure to uh, to be cool and hip with the ladies. So he got along very well with some older adults, and that was one of the things that he wanted most uh, 
in his youth is to grow up and be an adult himself. So we're going to take a look at just his very early beginnings here and then do a little leap into, you could say, his his young lion days when he was a young journalist at actually started writing for the paper at around 16 or 17. And by the time he was 18, he was already apprenticing. He had a fair amount of published newspaper articles under his belt already, and he was on his way. But where did he start? Well, here's a little background. Charles Hoyfort was born on August 6th, 1874 at four in the morning to Charles Nelson Fort, a prosperous second generation wholesale grocer in the Albany, New York area, and his wife, Agnes Hoy, who came from a prominent family of hardware merchants. Charles, the couple's first son, was nicknamed Toddy as a boy, T-O-D-D-Y, like a hot Toddy. And that was to distinguish him from his father, Charles Nelson. And yes, I do have to curb my urge to say Charles Nelson Riley. I, I was having the same <laughs> was, problem. And then on top yeah. of that, uh, Rockefeller, the Charles Nelson thing must have been quite a thing for a while there. Yeah, that's right. No, it, it, he's one of our favorite <laughs> right? actors. Because wasn't Charles Rockefeller's middle name? Oh Nelson boy, uh, good uh, trivia question. Alexa. Charles Nelson Rockefeller. Is that a person? Sorry, I don't have an answer for that. No, you've stumped mm. her. Okay. She's, uh, she's stumped. She can't tell you if your package has been stolen, though, maybe. <laughs> I'm refraining from a wide litany of jokes. Um, yeah, Charles Nelson Rockefeller. That's what I thought. Well, there you go. So in the family... <laughs> In the family, uh, I guess they didn't really call him Chuck Jr. Uh, he was just Toddy as a little boy. So, uh, right, Chucky now. There you go. Or Chuck Sr., old man <laughs> Chuck. No, he was a prominent natty businessman type. And his family line, the Fort line, was of Dutch nationality, but perhaps more of French ancestry. A couple years later, in 1876, the couple's second son, Raymond Nielsen Fort, was born on November 7th, 1876. Two years later, in 1878, the couple had their third son, Clarence Van Vranken, and that's a family surname, Fort, and he was born on November 11th. So get this time period here, early November, because sadly, a family story recounts that Charles and Agnes, being members of the well-to-do in Albany, were invited to a holiday ball at the governor's mansion. The birth of Clarence was quite strenuous on Agnes, his mother, and the family feared that this bit of excitement so soon after the birth would be detrimental to her recovery. She was suffering still some complications. Uh, and sadly, Agnes Hoy Fort soon suffered an infection that developed into an inflammation around the heart called pericarditis or pericarditis, and she died on January 2nd, 1879, at the young age of 25. Oh. Yeah. Well, it, hey, things were rough back then, even around yes. the turn of the 20th century. That happened quite a bit. So it's a common thing. This was tragic. But the Fort boys now, uh, Charles was four years old. Raymond was two years old. And Clarence now was just two months old. And they now live with their father, Charles Nelson Fort, in a new house in Albany at 53 Phillips Street. Now, Charles Sr., keeping a successful grocery distribution business going, he inherited, called P.V. Fort & Son, he could afford a small staff of servants for cooking and cleaning to do household chores. And he also had a middle-aged housekeeper named Elizabeth Wasson, and she also acted as a nanny to the boys. 
she taught them things like Sunday school. Uh, she was their Sunday school teacher. And she also kept them very busy with chores and little projects here. Even though it was hard work, every time after school, she would have them like do stuff like potting and helping with the garden and preparing before winter comes and bringing pots and stuff inside. And so it was apparent that she loved them. They seemed to love her. But this was not the case with their father. Now, once again, you get this great backstory because these fragments of his early life appear in his unpublished memoir, Many Parts. Again, written uh, maybe a decade, a couple of decades later, a decade and a half later in his 20s, when he was really writing up a storm, finding that as a passion. And Jim Steinmeier does a great job of putting that together, the fragments that exist into a narrative that reads, again, like I said, I got wrapped up in this story. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why, just like late night reading, it's like, wow. Again, a lot of it was rough. One impression of Fort that I always had, because you just see that same old public domain portrait of his. Yes. He's, you know, he's got the Pasnay glasses. <laughs> Basically, he, at some point in, in his early, uh, when he started to turn like 18 and 19, he started to look like Teddy Roosevelt. It's yeah. not an unrelated time for Roosevelt at the time was, uh, I, I think it was around this time when he started writing, uh, Roosevelt was New York City Police Commissioner, already had a storied history with, uh, I, I believe, the Rough Riders, and he had not yet announced his run for president. So you look at Fort and you think like, isn't that a cute, chubby nerd? Well, he was chubby. He was a husky boy growing up, but he was a big dude. And yeah. he he didn't like the impression of being a spectacle-wearing boy growing up. And he got into fights. This guy was no pushover. He was no, he was no glasses-wearing poindexter. He was a bit of a nerd in what he did, but he was also a big kid. And that also factors into the man he became and how he carried himself and how he viewed things. I feel like this last little bit that you've been saying, you could almost apply to me as well. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you were, I, I'm, you were digress, a tall, but... skinny, uh, uh, roughy I was nerd, not, right? Yes, I was not husky. I was tall and I yeah. was glasses wearing and I was a nerd, <laughs> but I also did occasionally get in a fight. So, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, I, 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 uh, I talked my way out with some dad jokes and that distracted them while I, <laughs> while I, I uh, sucker punched them. That's, that was my, oh, trick. there you go. Yes. Did yeah. Marty when McFly. When they were doubling yeah. over with laughter. Yes. That's right. when you, that's when you strike. Well, that's a little background on him, but here's the deal with his father. This was very formative. Charles Sr. fashioned himself in the Victorian style of the day. Uh, he was a bit of a dandy in that he always was dressed very sharply. He cared about his looks. Mustache, perfectly waxed. He was always working his social status in town as a successful business owner. And you, and you go and you, know, you do the things that uh, a prominent business person of town does. Yes, this is the dad, by the this way. This is the dad, yeah, Charles, right. right. Yeah. And so Charles, our subject here, Toddy, I'll refer to him as Toddy in a lot of this because it just makes it clear. Toddy is, is growing up and he was provided for, his dad wasn't stingy with uh, some things. He let the boys follow their pursuits. When Tony was very young, he liked collecting things. Uh, he was into collecting bird eggs. And uh, at some point, the boys got a uh, an air rifle and they were shooting and stuffing birds. He learned taxidermy. Uh, he was collecting rocks. He wanted to be a naturalist. That was his first passion as a kid. And so he collected stuff. He had little uh, bird organs and jars of formaldehyde. Well, no, but at the time, though, it, there was a lot of naturalism going on and trying to figure out how things worked. And that was a more prominent field of interest for right. kids his age, less of a 
serial killer vibe and more of a like, how, <laughs> what is nature? Kind right. Of well, so. that's the thing is that he was self-taught. He would later go on to be a huge stamp collector. And uh, yeah, so he, he was a collector and cataloger, you could say, and a, a wannabe naturalist as a very young boy. That was his, his first interest, you could say. But also, he, he again, my impression was like, well, there you go. That makes sense. Yes, he's collecting articles and he's like, he's just a, a nebbish little guy in his study with a roll roll up desk top and he's collecting things. It's like, no, he was also a, kind of a big dude scrapper at yes. some point. Who liked to drink beer. He was a Bill Brasky. Nobody's going to know who that was. But. <laughs> <Right>. Bill Brasky. <laughs> well, he, he was over six feet tall. I, I, I got to look that up. I, uh, I'm just off the top of my head. I believe he was six feet or taller yeah. and husky and stocky. So he could handle himself. So he had to balance that image of himself, of what he wanted to be also with his interests as a young boy, which changed over time. As kids, they got out and played and they got into trouble and they they almost got killed a handful of times. Yes. But let's go back to how Charles, the father, interacted with the kids. Toddy. So again, he provided for the boys and he, he let them develop their interests as kids. One summer, I think, with his uh, his new wife, they let the kids go to summer camp, which was very, again, that was a hugely inspirational, formative experience for uh, Toddy and, and his two brothers. But he was also a stern and cruel authoritarian, and he, he wasn't averse to slapping them hard, uh, hard enough to bloody Toddy's nose in one fateful event. Yeah, yeah he would be termed definitely abusive these days. Back then, it, they let that slide a little bit, but he was, uh, he was violent yeah. in the same way that Edgar Casey's father yeah, actually, that reminds me a lot about that. Maybe not in the same exact way, but like knocking Casey to the ground and yeah, you know, yeah, people got away with uh, they. Well, they turned a, a blind eye to that a little bit more, a lot more back then. Well, yeah, it was the patriarchal yeah. setup. You know, the dad can do no wrong, regardless of how much of a jerk dad was. So. Well, this is what's funny is that even in uh, the memoir that appears in many parts, and that uh, Jim Steinmeier points out as well is that even Charles Toddy, when he was older, writing the memoir was saying like, yeah, we were, we were, <laughs> we may have deserved it. I certainly think I deserved it sometimes. I can't remember the exact quote, but he said, uh, yeah, I, I kind of deserved being hit. So he, he knew he was acting up and that's part of his nature and his character was that after a while, he started not to care about the punishment so much, but the punishments also included other strange and definitely abusive ways, but not as violent, but things like he could also imprison the kids. And so he would basically lock them up in a room, in a dark room. I don't know if it was locked, but basically they couldn't come out of the room. It would be a dark room with only bread and water to eat three times a day. It was That was brought oh. in like they were prisoners. Yeah. And that can last for an hour, days, sometimes weeks. Solitary confinement. It's a bit of solitary confinement. And I'll, if I don't remember this later, it's something uh, I think my dad pointed out is that for some folks, bread and water only will really gum up the works. And uh -oh. so it's a double misery. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. in this case, though, that was, uh, yeah, it was just strange, harsh punishments for the kids. How these events and child rearing practices were viewed then versus now, they're obvious, I believe. Yes, it's abusive. But how they were looked at back then, even when I was growing up, you know, spanking wasn't uncommon. But of course, times change. And these practices certainly, with what he was doing, was violent, cruel. It was harsh, in my opinion, in any time. Yeah. And moving on, though, again, you could see this develop. And I, what I liked about it is I think a lot of folks can relate to this who have had, not abusive, but difficult relationships with parents. 
in how they viewed you difficult relationships with parents. Nobody has those. <laughs> never heard no. of it. <laughs> yeah, that never changes, does it? Well, <laughs> what also never changes is that parents have hopes for their children. It's like, oh, we want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. It's like, I'm going to be an improv comic. It's like, yeah. okay, well, we're not paying for that for college. <laughs> like you, <laughs> good luck. Yeah. You know, of course, they, they want you to do your best. They want the best for you. But they also want you to adopt their own hopes and dreams. And that's the case here. Charles, the father, of course, he wanted the kids, uh, at least his eldest kid, Charles Jr., to go into the wholesale grocery business one day. But Toddy had zero interest in provisions other than pilfering canned goods with his brothers from the warehouse for their own adventures, which is are kind of funny. Well, dad's like, here's a built-in business. And and Toddy's like, first, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. Second, stop beating me up and locking right. me in dark rooms. Maybe I might want to come work for you. Yeah, so I think it's Saturdays or Sundays, they had to go work at the warehouse and they did, uh, like they had to peel the old labels off the cans and put oh, yes. uh, the Fort and Son label on them. And it's like just drudgery. And it's just funny how they went about it and how uh, the three boys, well, actually the two, they were old enough to work, uh, how they kind of went about it and shirked their duties. And it's just like, it's like every kid. So, but that was the family business. Lots of uh, boxes stacked high, big warehouse to go explore. They were very adventurous which also leads to a career in journalism because you got to go out and you got to interview people. You can't be a shrinking violet. Here's the, the the whole deal on the early childhood though, okay? No interest in the kingly business from the prince. Yes. Charles Sr. sees himself as a very important man. This is a very good business. And of course, when you're older and you're you're struggling with your job, it's like, man, I should have got into grocery, wholesale distribution, solid yeah. job, good pay. I'd have a house by now. But of course, you don't want that when you're younger. You notice my son is conspicuously absent from this podcast, by the way. No interest in podcasting. <laughs> Even if we <laughs> were on a good. Twitch I'm stream glad. and some of the best gamers out there, he'd be like, yeah, you guys are old and idiots. So, Oh, yeah. You know, we are on Discord now, so he's fairly impressed. Oh, yeah. Where you go? We need <laughs> we need more cooler avatars, though, right? We need to, we need to up our game somehow. Yeah. Here's the thing. Uh, some parents don't care. Here, he was pretty disappointed. Uh, he was not in the uh, interested in the wholesale business. And so their personalities start to diverge. And that causes a rift. And they did not get along until, of course, Charles uh, uh, Sr. offered to send them to summer camp. Yeah. Toddy thought like, well, let's make peace for a while. I want to be in his good stead. And maybe he's not such a bad dude. So times were uh, very peaceful for a little while. But all this uh, harsh growing up, and adventurism and them hanging together, these brothers grew very close. They didn't get all mature as they're uh, right away after maybe with not having a mother for so long. They enjoyed their childhood. It was quite adventurous for them, but they ended up in different paths, you could say. And it was that's a little interesting too, that, that life choice. So it eventually he became a, an apprentice at a newspaper and to jump to the very end, he, Charles Hoy Fort, passed away on May 3rd, 1932. Oh, well, yeah. Well, now we're going to talk about some of that middle part. I think. Yes. Between okay. now and the end of part two, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, This we're putting this one together a little bit like Pulp Fiction, folks. It's going to jump around a little bit. We call it temporal displacement. Well, here, here you take us, uh, I've been blabbing for too long, as always. You take us into uh, his early adulthood when he he's really gets a knack for writing. And, and like I said, the, the transition I'll mention here is that it was his young uncle who suggested like, hey, how would you like to, as I think as, as the quote goes from his, uh, from his memoirs that he said, uh, how would you like the newspaper business, kid? 
he replied like, oh, it'd be okay. In inside, he's like, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I would love to do. Yes. And so he was keeping that excitement down. And he he leaned into it, as they say nowadays. And yeah. at a young age, so 16, 17, he, he started to apprentice. By the time that he was a young man, he looked back and said, I, I kind of did a lot. I was kind of a big deal for a while. Yeah. Early on. And and he was compared to, you know, what I did <laughs> getting out of college. <laughs> so that's his transition is that he's now really getting into journalism and more importantly, into writing. Uh, he was marveling at his own writing, essentially, and the use of words and looking at it analytically, like, okay, I've, uh, I want to express this feeling. Did I do it right? How do I do that? What's more important, what actually happened or the feeling? These things are, are informing his thought structure, what, again, would inform his investigations about weird stuff later. All right. So coming back around to the middle part of Fort's writing career, how, how it started before he became really well known. Mm -hmm. And this, again, is from Jim Steinmeier's book, uh, Charles Fort, The Man Who Invented the Supernatural. There's a quote in Steinmeier's book that I liked. He said, Charles Fort was a frustrated fiction writer who became obsessed with a new kind of story. And again, like you said, Forrest, this book was hard to put down. It is a very compelling journey that he goes yeah, on. Yeah. And it's not surprising to find this man at the end of the Fortean rainbow. It's It all <laughs> lines up. It's mm -hmm. not like a boring guy who stumbled into this notoriety. He right. got there for a reason. And the thing about Fort is that this is more than finding these stories. It's about vetting them. And yeah. for him, the stories that he shares or that he compiles or this compendium, like Forrest said, they're not fantastical to him. They're mundane, yeah. which in turn is what makes them interesting. Like if you go back to the staple, frogs fell out of the sky. Mm -hmm. It's pretty mundane, really. I mean, it's yes, it shouldn't be happening. I don't know why it's happening, right. but it's real simple. Frogs fell out of the sky. That's the whole yeah. thing. It's six words. This is what happened. Oh, and it's time to for me to dust off my uh, one of my newly acquired uh, favorite chestnut quotes here that I got actually from the Vertical Plane, available now in the second edition. That's right. It with is. the mention of guacamole recipes at the end. Yes, by us. And also we're mentioned in there and our episodes are mentioned in there, but you can find it on Amazon. Just look up the Vertical Plane. The second edition is completely affordable and Ken Webster published it just because he wanted it to be affordable and people to have access to it. Yeah. So. Now, Sir William Crooks, a uh, British chemist, he lived uh, from 1832 to 1919. So kind of in this, yeah, kind of in this range here. Yeah. Uh, he was a British chemist and physicist who attended the Royal College of Chemistry and worked on spectroscopy. He was a pioneer of vacuum tubes, inventing the Crookes tube. Also, yeah, the little thing with the, that spins, the um, uh, somethometer, the light bulb with the flag. The something spinometer. The tone. Yeah, the, the, you know you. That you put the centrifuge. No, we talked about this before. Oh, oh, the, the, the radiometer. Radiometer. The light bulb with yes, the little flag thing in it. Yeah. That the heat we always it, yeah. thought it's. Uh, geez, you know what? I didn't. I wasn't prepared to talk about this, but I remember from the uh, description on the box. Yes. It works on a principle of thermal transpiration, okay. I believe. All right. And here's the idea. I always thought it was like, oh, you know, the sun's heating up the black side of the thing, right? Yeah. The vein. And that spins it because it's maybe pushing it. No, it's the gases inside, the oxygen, the air, the nitrogen, whatever, the gases inside. Gas wants to seek equilibrium. So there is a pressure deficiency on one side of the vein than the other. And it seeks to correct that. That causes the veins to spin. Oh, okay. 
and there we go. Blah, blah, blah. I just read that from the uh, the box it came in before I I recycled it. Yes. So here's the deal though with the quote from William Crooks. I believe it was D.D. Home. He he saw him perform some psychic feats. Yes. And he there was there to witness it and uh, did not find any kind of uh, chicanery. Of course, if you don't believe it, it's all chicanery. In his quote for about that, I believe he said, "I did not say that it was possible. I simply said that it happened. It may be a part of." for its approach. I'm telling you what was reported. You know, I can't tell you what the mundane explanation is. What I will tell you is that I'm not looking for one or the other. I'm not looking for a supernatural crazy explanation that I can believe in and support. And I'm not looking for to dismiss this with something that actually scientifically doesn't apply, but it's convenient. And I like that approach. Well, and the funny thing is, is that Fort did not care for physicists at all and was kind of down on scientists <laughs> as well. But oh I'm going to yeah. counter with his quote, which was, there's not a physicist in the world who can perceive when a parlor magician palms off playing cards. <laughs> so, uh, which I think <laughs> right. is another one of his great yeah. quotes. Well, you know, look, I, I love the, we love the amazing Randy. And uh, as yes. we mentioned God before in that documentary, uh, he got conned. Yeah. The guy who can spot any con That's was right. conned in love. Conned in love. So as we go through this, you're going to hear these stories that are so common, and uh, it's going to, again, inform you as to how do we know about these things? Well, talk about frogs from the sky. Yeah, well, that's the thing, the frogs from the sky. Like I said, that's very mundane. It's very simple. Right. And for Fort, that was the kind of story that when he found a few accounts from it and he tracked down where they came from and there was more than one or two of them and it seemed like an event that really happened, it's like, okay, there's this mundane event. I can't explain it, but it happened. There and again... He was a skeptic, and it's hard to see. How can this yeah. guy be a skeptic? He's talking about meat showers and frogs. Well, this is something that he infamously did not approve of, and this came from Steinmeier's right. book again. He actually had turned down sharing a story about a talking dog, not because the dog spoke, but because mm -hmm. it disappeared and how it disappeared <laughs> after it spoke. Now, listen, Ooh, listen to this yeah. excerpt from uh, Steinmeier's okay. book. It was told in the New York World, July 29th, 1908, Many petty robberies in the neighborhood of Lincoln Avenue, Pittsburgh, detectives detailed to catch the thief. Early in the morning of July 26th, a big black dog sauntered past them. Good morning, said the dog. He disappeared in a thin greenish vapor. <laughs> there will be readers who will want to know what I mean by turning down this story, while mm -hmm. accepting so many others in this book. It is because I never write about marvels. The wonderful or the never before heard of, I leave to whimsical or radical fellows. All books written by me are of quite ordinary occurrences. It is not that I think hmm. it impossible that detectives could meet a dog who would say good morning. That's no marvel. <laughs> Fort cited <laughs> examples of dogs that said hello or thank you. But the problem was the disappearance. He insisted that if he had similar examples, quote, dated sometime in the year 1930, telling of a mouse who squeaked, I was along this way and thought I'd drop in and vanished along a trail of purple sparklets, end quote, he'd consider admitting the phenomenon into his fold. Some of us have taken Jehovah and some of us take Allah to despise or to be amused with. To give us limits within which to seem to be, every mind must practice exclusions. I draw my line at the dog who said good morning <laughs> and disappeared in a thin greenish vapor. He is a symbol of the false and arbitrary, unreasonable and inconsistent limit, which everybody must somewhere set in order to pretend to be. You can't fool me with that dog story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, okay. what, this is the other thing. Before yeah. you make your point for us, okay. which I can't wait to hear, mm. Fort is funny. 
This guy yeah. is no, he's <laughs> a funny writer. So, and yeah. that's the other thing I like about him. He was lighthearted about the paranormal. It's, right. He's not even calling it the paranormal, but that's another thing that I think we like to do. We like to find mm -hmm. the humor in it when it works, you know, and you can't fool me with that dog story. Part of this is, again, we've said this from the beginning when we started, is not to take ourselves uh, too seriously, while at the same time being respectful to the stories and the people that we present. We're not out in the field getting these stories like a reporter. I am certainly no journalist. Actually, though, uh, I did work for a time for the downtown news here in LA. Oh, well, so I, I did yeah. I did journalism thing. I journalized for a little bit and uh, did that in college. Well, you're then... a journalist now. That's what History's Greatest Mysteries called you on the um, Summerton Man episode. Oh, stop now, please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you'll embarrass me. What I'm saying here is to define ourselves, you and I, what we do. Yes. I wouldn't get that lofty depending on oh, how no. you see journalism Heavens these days. No. We're trying to inform. It's infotainment in a way, but we're not on the field. We're not gathering the information. We're not physicists, blah, blah, blah. Please consult your doctor. We we don't even play one on TV. And we'll tell you what we think. We speculate, of course. Uh, that's part of it. We're not just a uh, almanac or journal. We present stuff. We like to talk about it because that's the fun part we enjoy. And people think that if you merely present something, you're on board with it. You're you're giving it a platform. You're, you're saying this is the truth. They want to know. Tell us what to think in some cases. Some people already believe like that's impossible. And that's fine. We're just presenting all the possibilities. You get to decide. Ford did that a little bit. Now, what he's doing here, though, is he hit on something that I've said before. And yes. again, that's why I love this story is that everybody's got a boundary. <laughs> I'm not crossing that. Th okay, the talking that's dog right. is like, okay, now. Nah. I mean, that's exactly Ford's line here. To give us limits within which to seem to be, every mind must practice exclusions. He's saying it right yeah. there. Yeah. This is mine. You have yours. We all have ours. That yeah. doesn't change anything. It's just how it has to be. I think you used to see this a lot more. Uh, okay, I believe that uh, there could be machines flying around, secret machines, government built, this and that. Okay, maybe they're alien. Obviously, it's a little uh, hub hubristic. Man, I'm just throwing them out. There's a lot of hubris <laughs> when you say, we're the only ones in the universe. It's like, eh, statistically... It's a big place. <laughs> I don't know what, what that accent is, but uh, Desi Arnaz? Ah, uh, no. Oh, guys, I'm explaining to do. Do see? No, no, that yeah. was all right. Wow. Now I was doing the waiter from defending your life yes, in the restaurant yes. when he brings him all the pies, and he's like, "I didn't order all those pies." He's like, "Oh, yes, you did." <laughs> yeah. So that's what I, was uh, I, I had like to get you. back. See, my subconscious yeah. mind picked that impression, not me, not my. I like mind. you. I'm going to give you nine pies. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Look, the idea here is, is that we all have limits. And what I was saying is that you see a little bit of this when people say, okay, I believe that there might be contact and, and aliens from other planets. I just watched Nova last night where they're looking for Martian microbes off world. Yeah. You're talking about life, folks. Technically alien life that's on another planet, but it's in microbial form. Well, if you believe- oh, That's uh, another thing Fort talked yeah. about is meteorites with fossils in them. Oh, yeah. It, things that shouldn't happen. I haven't course. drilled down on that. I want to. No, no, like, I did I see I hadn't that. heard it, that one until this research, right. actually. Yeah. You know, if it can be a microbe and you believe in evolution, couldn't that then grow into a more complex creature? That's just, we just haven't found that yet. The other thing I learned is that in our uh, uh, epic uh, Anthropocene, 
what things get buried over millions and millions of years and you it's a good chance you just haven't found something yet what if a microbe got super super smart never got bigger than a microbe right. and then evacuated the planet in tiny microbe spaceships <laughs> well uh, <laughs> in an impact certainly the, there's a panspermia idea there's an impact yeah. like a, a a meteorite uh, a giant one impact could send stuff into space Therefore, it can get to uh, little tardigrades visiting yeah, other other planets. They're amazing. Speaking of tiny UFOs, I did want to mention that our good friend Rob K is working on a series about them, and I cannot, absolutely cannot wait to hear it. I think we're going to be part of it yeah. a little bit, but even if that doesn't pan out, I can't wait to hear it. So it's going to be terrific. Let's say uh, you believe in UFOs. This is your version here, a little harder. But here's the idea: is that a lot of people will say, like, okay, you know what? Uh, fine, I'll get on board with aliens flying around, people visiting, uh, you know, or at least there's machines being sent here, drones perhaps, but I will not get on board with alien abduction. That is insane. These people are crazy. They sound I'm like not getting wackos. on board figuratively or literally. <laughs> no, that's just, a, it's a strange line. I don't know why you can't make that leap of like, okay, maybe there's UFOs, but these people talking about their abduction experiences, no way. That's my line I will not cross. Is it because it's a scary idea? Or do you think like they can't possibly be, yeah, they're flying around, but they, they can't possibly be wanting to give any of us a ride or take our temperature? Oh, this is for folks who have been out on a hike and got home and never found an ant crawling up their pant leg. <laughs> Hitchhike. Hey, yeah. it happens. Hey guys, Wayward Son here where I'm not telling stories of adventure in the great outdoors on the Wayward Stories podcast, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Let's get back to the show. The more we got into his ethos, the more I personally had a very profound experience of remembering why Forrest and I started Astonishing Legends. I actually got a trip back into my state of mind that has changed since we were wanting to ramp the show up. And this is not about that thing that everybody takes a drink when I say. It's about more than that. It's about the whole motivation for wanting to talk about this stuff. Now, ostensibly, we got into all of this for all the same reasons Charles Fort was into it. Of course, we're not him. We can't match our motivations to him, but a lot of our modus operandi aligns with where he wound up getting to. Right. So coming back around to the beginning of Charles Fort's writing career, or more correctly, the point at which he got noticed by someone who would ultimately wind up profoundly helping him succeed and become a lifelong friend, we have to introduce Theodore Dreiser. Here's an excerpt of, of the introduction to him from Wikipedia. Theodore Herman Albert Dreiser was born August 27th, 1871. That's one day after my birthday, not the year, of course, and died on December 28th, 1945. He was an American novelist and journalist of the naturalist school. His novels often featured main characters who succeeded at their objectives despite a lack of a firm moral code and literary situations that more closely resembled studies of nature than tales of choice and agency. Dreiser's best-known novels include Sister Carrie, published in 1900, and An American Tragedy, published in 1925. So let's talk about Sister Carrie a little bit, because it was a seminal work for Dreiser, and also because Steinmeier talks about it in his book, and the trials and tribulations that Dreiser went through while he was trying to get it published. Again, this is Wikipedia on, the, on a page just for that book. Yeah. Sister Carrie is a novel by Theodore Dreiser about a young woman who moves to the big city where she starts realizing her own American dream. She first becomes a mistress to men that she perceives as superior, but later becomes a famous actress. It has been called, quote, 
the greatest of all American urban novels, end quote. From that same page further down on the general reception section, it says, Theodore Dreiser's Sister Carrie was not widely accepted after it was published, although it was not completely withdrawn by its publishers, as some sources say it was. Neither was it received with the harshness that Dreiser reported. For example, the Toledo Blade reported that the book, quote, is a faithful portraiture of the conditions it represents, showing how the tangle of human life is knotted thread by thread, end quote. But that it was, quote, too realistic, too somber to be altogether pleasing, end quote. There is also the receipt of sale, which Doubleday sent to Dreiser showing that Sister Carrie was not withdrawn from the shelves, reporting that 456 copies of the 1,008 copies printed were sold. And in fact, later on in 1952, Sir Lawrence Olivier and Jennifer Johns starred in a film version of it, which I've never seen. Hmm. One last Wikipedia excerpt on it. Hmm. Though Dreiser has been criticized for his writing style and lack of formal education, Sister Carrie remains an influential example of naturalism and realism. And this is the reason I'm including this, because this connects back to Fort and his admiration of Fort. While it initially did not sell well, and encountered censorship, it is now considered one of the great American urban novels, which explores the gritty detail of human nature as well as how the process of industrialization affected the American people. And that's important to think about what's going on with industrialization at this time. And there were a lot of holes in the education that I had anyway Mm -hmm. in high school and coming up. And I, I went to some pretty good public schools, but as we all know now, things were whitewashed, looked over, shuffled aside. But one thing they covered pretty thoroughly was the industrial age. And oh, right, right. When, when you think about industrialization and the factories and the work and what's happening to the jobs, and you use that to frame everything that's going on here, it's very yeah. interesting in the context of the big picture. A lot of us had to read Upton Sinclair and and uh, what was going in the meatpacking industry yes, and, and exposing yeah. what was going on, the, the the dark underbelly of all this prosperity we were experiencing. And uh, I think in part two, with the story of, of what was going on, we'll talk about the 20s, the roaring yes. 20s, and how yes. that was, uh, that is the backdrop, that is the canvas upon which Fort was doing his work and why it was important and why people don't remember their history. They think it's like, oh, it's crazy now. It's like, hey, there were anarchists blowing things up in Washington, D.C. I just watched a YouTube video the other night, and I, I can't remember the details, but it was really great. It just popped up as I was doom scrolling or whatever. <laughs> and it was it was some YouTuber and she was down in lower Manhattan in Wall, at Wall Street in front of the, you know, the main facades there. Mm-hmm. And there's big chunks out of the marble. And she explained how it was from 1912, I think, mm-hmm. where someone blew up a wagon full of dynamite. Oh, yeah. Right in front yeah. of that building. And they, yeah. they never bothered to figure it. What, how are you going to fix it? It's like right. Puma Punku. It's like a 10 ton of stone. <laughs> but the holes yeah. are still there, which is that's yeah. one of the things I love about New York. Some of that stuff is the evidence of this crime that happened right. 110 years ago is still there. And they, she said in her video anyway that they never figured out who even did that or why. Yeah, you think January 6th was nuts. That's nothing new, folks. People have been doing this uh, for their re- reasons all throughout history. Uh, you go to Berlin, was it the Reichstag? Is that the, It still has the bullet holes in it because it's it's a testament to it. Same thing with uh, when I was, uh, oh yeah, when I was in Germany. I think it's the Kaiser Wilhelm cathedral like that is so look i'm not looking that up we can't look at everything <laughs> folks and just please, again we're not any kind of academic source here they it was bombed during world war ii and they left it not only as a memorial but as a reminder right. in this time that's the backdrop from which people's minds were being changed the spirituality that we've often talked about uh, spiritism spiritualism the fox sisters all that stuff from the 1850s now to the turn of the century the 1920s and when Fort was doing a lot of his writing as a young man in, in the 
90s, mindsets are being changed. And what he was presenting, again, was now being looked at in a slightly different light. So again, context is very important. So anyway, we're looking at five years after Dreiser had published Sister Carrie. He's had some success. He's now an editor at a publishing house called Street and Smith. And they had a journal called Smith's Magazine. It's one of many things I think he oversaw. But for a while now, he had been reading these super gritty stories about tenement life or working on the docks. And they were always written by a man with a byline, Charles Fort. And he Hmm. couldn't believe how good these stories were. He loved how dark and urban they were. And the dialogue was ultra real. And being a person who Sister Carrie was a realism, naturalism kind of book. And it's less about, oh, here's the story and it's going to flow this way. And the protagonist and the antagonist and more just like about the reality of this super harsh living situation which Fort was writing about. And the reason Fort knew so much about it was because he was living it. He was Mm -hmm. poor. He and his wife were living in these horrible, horrible tenement houses. There were lots of addresses listed in Steinmeier's book, and I looked a lot of them up, and it's really interesting. Uh. They're all in the, you know, for people that know New York City, they're in the 40s. They're around the Port Authority bus terminal, which is a maze of ramps and not a pleasant place. And Mm -hmm. one of the buildings that he supposedly lived in When you go to the address of it, it is a collection of ramps and a hill for buses to come in and out of the the bus terminal. So it was torn down a long time ago. Some other buildings are still standing. And in fact, I was going to reach out to them today and I forgot. I found one home that he supposedly lived in with his wife, Anna, that is now a funeral home. It was a five floor Hmm. walk up building. And I think the building that's standing with the funeral home in it is probably the same building that he lived in. I was going to call them and ask them if there were any ghosts on the fifth floor. Mm. <laughs> but um, but that's one of my favorite things about New York. So, well, anyway, Dreiser had been reading these stories for a while. And the big thing about all of this and the tenement life and the and the gritty side of, of the world that Fort used to write about before he became known for what we're talking about him tonight for is he would rather that was forgotten. For him, that was a darker time in his life. He was barely getting by. He could hardly pay his bills. His, He and his wife were like scraping by regularly, talking about we're broke, we're going to have to move tonight. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we're doing for our next meal. She was working full-time in a laundry at a hotel in Manhattan just so they could make ends meet. And But the crux of this was when Dreiser read Fort's work, he was fascinated with the writing style. Now, I'm going to say that I'm seeing some things between the lines here in the way that Steinmeier depicts the relationship between Dreiser and Fort. And it reminds Mm -hmm. me a little bit, for folks who have seen Amadeus, which is interesting, (laughs) it reminds me a little bit of Solieri and Mozart. And that movie's hard to find now. I don't know why. It's very hard to find anywhere. Really? Yes. If you go looking for it, I don't know if it's a licensing thing or the music or something. Sometimes music makes things impossible to uh, share later. Like You can buy a DVD of it. But you, you can't stream it anywhere. It's an outstanding film. But anyway, there's a there's this famous relationship between Solieri and Mozart. And I don't know this is necessarily the case with Dreiser and Fort, because Dreiser was in his own right a, a very successful author and had a uh-huh. good career. And in the case of Solieri, Solieri was the guy who recognized the talent but didn't get it, didn't have it himself. You know, he was a composer of notes. Yeah, he, he just, had some of it, but, but he, he didn't realized have the he'll natural, never be, yeah. Yeah, I am not going to be the, that know, level, the guy who right. can yeah, write a symphony at the age of six with my eyes closed yeah. and one Play hand Play the piano back. upside down and let out a toot. At the yeah, exactly. Day. He's right. like, okay. I'm not going to be that guy. And I'm not saying that Dreiser was Solieri, but I'm just saying there's some similarities there. You know, I'm married to a writer. I've been around writers for 
decades, like 30 plus years now. Mm -hmm. And I've seen all different kinds and there's parallels here in this whole story for me. And, but what you do see is people, uh, writers and all creative types have gifts in different areas, musicians Mm -hmm. in different areas. Some are good at a certain form of music. Others are good at others. Others can do all kinds of things, but I feel like Dreiser might've thought, oh, you know, I love this realism that Fort is portraying. And why can't I write like that? I want this guy to get read because people need to see that he can do it. And I've had some level of success, so I'm going to try to give him a leg up whenever I can. And so I think that's one of the reasons that he first reached out to Fort. And this is before Fort had really done it. He was getting published in newspapers, but that was it. Dreiser was the one who was about to take him to his next level over kind of a long, slow journey. So he reached out to Fort and he asked him to come into his office for a meeting. And, and that's when Dreiser starts his relationship with paying Fort for his stories. He, he starts to get Fort. He starts to understand him, who is an unusual man, to say the very least. Steinmeier points out that how the stories were so real, they had to be true. And if they're true, the consideration is maybe you're not really a, a writer. You're just documenting reality. Is that lazy? Or is it more creative to make something that sounds so real that it must be reality? So that's part of the gift that Dreiser felt that Fort had, and that's also part of the gift that Dreiser is credited with in his own work. Still, this was the beginning of a long and profound relationship between Dreiser and Fort. And over the years, Dreiser encouraged Fort in his effort to transition from someone submitting stories to journals to a novelist. He had already attempted to write many parts, but that was an autobiography. What about a novel? Mm. Many Parts was written in 1901, but it was officially unpublished, although scraps of it are here and there, like Forrest said Mm -hmm. earlier. His final draft of it was 80,000 words, not a huge book. That's around 120 pages, readable in about five hours, or so I've been told by a Mm. robot that Amazon owns. But nevertheless, Mm. it didn't see the light of day. I can't say her name, or she'll chime in here. Unfortunately, everyone it was submitted to had passed on it. He could not get that autobiography published. Many parts is a story in itself, as is frankly for its entire story. There is so much more to it than we can get into two episodes of Astonishing Legends, but it is all super fascinating to me. So if you're into this at all, we strongly recommend starting with Jim Steinmeier's biography on him. Well, after he finished many parts and it didn't get published, he was frustrated, but he was determined to keep at becoming a novelist. So now it's six years later in 1907, and Theodore Dreiser at this point has kind of discovered Charles Fort. And the fruits of this relationship lead to Ford's first real novel in 1909, The Outcast Manufacturers, which I love the title of this. Mm. Dreiser had a stake now in a publishing house called B.W. Dodge, which he got because they had made a deal with him to republish Sister Carrie. And as part of that deal, he got a part of that publishing house. So again, technically, this was Ford's first novel since many parts had been an autobiography. Now Steinmeier points out that he may have gotten fed up with doing so many gritty stories for magazines and or journals, I should say, and he was mm-hmm. ready to get serious about becoming a novelist now. At this point, he's 32 years old. He and Anna, or Annie, as he called her, lived in Hell's Kitchen, which at the time was an intensely hard area of Manhattan. I've spent time there. Mm-hmm. It's still got an edge of sorts, yeah. but it's a hell of a lot nicer now. It did. My, my wife and I have some friends who live there in a very charming yeah. condo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hell's Kitchen back then was a different ball game entirely. And Fort had been working on the outcast manufacturers for some time, and Anna had taken a job working at a laundry in a hotel in the area just so he could stay home and write it. 
which I think says something about her character and how yeah. much they cared for each other. It's pretty awesome. Right. She believed in him. And I know I keep using the word gritty, but that's what's mm -hmm. happening here. Times were gritty. Everything was gritty. The Outcast Manufacturers was about a man named Sim Rakes. This is mm. like the best name ever. Sim, S-I-M, <laughs> Rakes, who works for a company that ships out junky like dime store novelties. Mm -hmm. Sim meets other workers and servants in the city. It's like a Downton Abbey ensemble of characters, I suppose, except that everyone works in different places and all of them are continually falling on worse and worse luck and circumstances. The story seems to have had a lot of dangling areas where one thing would happen to start a new scene, but then that progression was forgotten and the new scene never materialized. Early editions of it uh, that Dreiser had him revise had so much dialogue and no prose that he made him change it. But Ford's style was unique, maybe messy, but still at the time compelling for readers. That main character, Sim Rakes, actually evolves into a secondary character as the story goes on, hmm. which some people are like, oh, well, this is clumsy. But other people are like, no, this is a stylistic choice. Now, I have not personally right. read this. I've just heard Steinmeier describing it. It does remind me of what sounds like a Robert Altman movie. Yeah. It's like a series of short stories strung together and for its unique gritty tone. I would just say that there is a comparison of sorts artistically, thematically, stylistically between the that a style that will emerge in the 20s yeah. of surrealism. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and that's what you said, like the, the one character changes into the other. It reminded me of Boone Wells' movie where- Yes. He, well, it, that was, the, it was Carol Bouquet. She quit, or there was, she quit in the middle of the film. And he's like, what am I going to do? I got to have the main actress. He's like, or do I? Or so do I? You introduce somebody. It's just like, people are like, wait, is that the same woman? What happened here? What happened to the other one? Yeah. And you label it as like, uh, yeah, I'm playing with your expectations or your perceptions. And- there is a connection between what Fort wrote about, which is right. high strangers messing with your perceptions. That's All right. this stuff seems surreal. Rocks falling from the sky with the writing on it, you know. Right. It's like a stream of consciousness, but it's more than that because the yeah. stream of consciousness is undirected. There's an implication here that Ford is making these choices on purpose or, you know, and I guess we don't know. It's again, I always talk about the green light and yeah. know, the great Gatsby and everybody talking about what it means. And F Scott Fitzgerald's the only one who knows, but unless he's been on the record, somebody let me know. Has he gone on the record mm. about what the green light means? I don't know if he has, but the point is doing that on purpose or was he kind of a sloppy writer or was he a sloppy writer and it wound up adding to it stylistically and everybody loved it because when right. you look at surrealism or uh, certain movements in the art world, of course it's sloppy. Jackson mm -hmm. Pollock, all about sloppy, but still <laughs> amazing to look at. So mm -hmm. that's where you go with that. Mm. So Forrest, here's a little excerpt from the Outcast Manufacturers. I think it right. would sound better if you read it. Than oh, me. So thank you so much, sir. Steinmeier shared this section in, uh, in the biography of Fort that he wrote. The other Miss Dunphy came into the room, a straight up and down young person dressed in white. Had she stood very still with her big, colorless round face, she might possibly have been mistaken for an aquarium globe on a marble pedestal. She flushed a little, flushes like goldfish in an aquarium, fluttering in her globe-like colorless face, goldfish in a globe of milk, perhaps, or goldfish struggling in a globe of whitewash, have it round white lights in a mass of trees, like such perforations in darkness as would be seen by a bug in a pepper box looking up at the sky. Mrs. Tunnan, nose like a tiny model of a subway entrance, nostrils almost perpendicular and shaped like the soles of tiny feet, 
soles of the feet of a fairy, rest of him investigating within. I mean, <laughs> I love that passage. Here yeah. you can hear Fort's obsession with visual metaphors, yes. the aquarium on the column. And Steinmeier points out that he collected those visual metaphors in the form of papers and notes, which he had in all kinds of shoeboxes, and he would pluck them from his collection to fill out his stories. But the other thing, you know what this reminds me of, is stylistically, people are going to be like, how dare you compare a fort to this? But like stylistically, honestly, this section reminds me of Cormac McCarthy a little bit yeah. and the, his style of writing, which breaks all the rules. There are no rules. It's just getting the message out in the way that the author wants to put it out there. But I find it very interesting. It pulls you in and it doesn't matter what the approach is. And it's a very, very unique approach to him. Mm -hmm. I think it's colorful and it paints a wonderful picture in your mind while you're reading it. Well, what you just said about goldfish and milk, that just reminded me that this is, uh, this is connected also Fort's findings and the paranormal and the Fortean in general. Yes. I believe this is also in Steinmeier's book listed is a quote from Henry David Thoreau, the American writer, saying, some circumstantial evidence is very strong as when you find a trout in the milk. Right. And I think that's a comment on people who say like, well, it's all circumstantial evidence. You have no proof now. We were not in a lab. You did nothing yeah. in a jar. That yeah. was all just circumstantial evidence. And he says, yes. And sometimes it's very real and very obvious and uh, very disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard to ignore. There's a trout in the milk jug or whatever. So I think that's what he's saying is like, that's what Fort would come to find in a lot of his cases that... People saw meat falling from the sky. Yes. You may debate the reason that happened and how mundane you could find a reason for, but you can't deny that it, it, it happened. Well, Steinmeier also quotes Fort's first biographer, Damon Knight, who wrote about him back in 1920, I believe, is saying, quote, Fort has put his characters into a shoebox stage and made them seem like tiny, engaging puppets dressed in scraps with faces the size of buttons. I think this all, it's all very colorful, the way everyone's writing about everyone, and but it is, <laughs> it's fun to read. Well, the book did okay, it didn't do great, it's more revered now than it was then, and there's a lot more writing history between the Outcast manufacturers and Fort's next published novel, mostly because there were two unpublished novels in between. Mm -hmm. He toiled for years working on two other massive projects that never got published. The first one, after the Outcast manufacturers, was simply called X. Ooh, very cool. Like the letter yeah. X, yes. Right. <laughs> and yeah. all through this, Theodore Dreiser was supporting him emotionally and in every other way, trying to help him get published. This is the story of how X came to pass. In 1914, apparently he reached out to Dreiser because his library card had expired, and he wanted a new one quickly for the new public library on 42nd Street. Fort was living pretty close to there, and I actually yeah. looked up the address of where he used to live. This area where his building was is now part of where all these ramps for the buses go into the bus terminal, which is, if you've never seen it, right. it's the craziest thing. I've ridden buses in and out of there a bunch of times. It's not a Buffalo Wild Wings in Times Square? It's not, no. no. <laughs> it's but, a few but blocks that is there. That is Times Square, though, right? That's not far from it. He's a, it's a little bit uh, to the west. Okay. But this new library had opened up in 1911. It's now 1914. And you know this library. Everybody listening to this show knows uh, this library. Yeah. It's the one where the Ghostbusters busted their first ghost <laughs> in the basement. And they right. came down the stairs and you see the lions. Yeah. And it's funny. I lived in New York for 10 years. I always knew the lions as being named Patience and Fortitude. Mm -hmm. Turns out I learned this a little bit of a tangent. Tangent alert. We haven't mm -hmm. done one of those in a while, have mm -hmm. we? 
the Lions were originally named Leo Lennox and Leo Astor uh. for the benefactors who had uh, given their money to build the library. But during the Great Depression, Fiorello LaGuardia renamed them Patience and Fortitude because that's what he felt the people in the city needed to have because times was hard. Yeah, love that. Anyway, Fort wanted a new library card. He writes to Dreiser, who hasn't heard much from him in a while for the card. And according to Steinmeier, Dreiser responds, quote, either you have 14 novels and nine plays concealed somewhere, or you are compiling an encyclopedia fortiana. Which is it? You are a library mole burrowing underground. You are a troglodyte rejoicing in unheralded caves. Well, consume more data to your own confusion. Eat libraries and suffer inevitable encyclopedic apoplexy. Uh, and I was I, it's like, I put a little note here in all caps. Yeah. I can relate to this. This is what you and I attempt to do. We attempt to eat libraries. We consume books. We we do endless research. Right. There is a lot I of mean, that, but we're not. Uh, there's a difference here in that, uh, you know, we do get out. You do have a family. You, you do see daylight. <laughs> the only reason this, I see my family is because my office is in my home. Right, right. Well, Truthfully, I mean, here's the thing. Fort I've was, had no was, less in the last two weeks than 10 invitations to come out to eat, come out to meet people, come out. And you know where I've been? Right where I am now, talking to you or researching for this show or the last yeah, one. Yeah, there is a lot of that. I probably don't notice because I wasn't doing much socially anyway. So it <laughs> doesn't seem to be much of a change. <laughs> My impression here, though, with that description and their friendship is that there is a maybe more than just a little introversion. Yes. As we know, he wasn't opposed or frightened of talking to people. He was a reporter. He would go out and uh, like his first job was just interviewing ministers about their sermons for the paper. Just like, well, what are you going to talk about on Sunday? But there are some social situations that he felt awkward in and maybe shied away from. And here it's a bit of an obsession. I think that Dreiser is talking about is that you can get too obsessed. You can get too hermitized. and then you're all living inside your head and this miasma of strange facts and stories and all that. And uh, fine, if you want to go do that, go do that. You know, and that's what he's saying. I guess in our context, maybe it's somebody that you knew that was really spending a lot of late nights looking up just crap on the internet and surfing for no apparent reason. Yes, but I'm drawing direct comparisons to our right. work method Run. And in light of the sentence you just said, it's 1.30 in the morning for me, and I'm <laughs> sitting know. here talking about yeah. Charles Fort with you right yeah, now. Well, I know. Yeah. But here's here's what he's saying, though, or what, what Theodore is saying, is that what are you doing with all this information here? Yes. Are you, are you, do you, have you written 14 novels or you, you you got a bunch of plays you haven't told us about? Maybe yes. you're making an encyclopedia set. That always reminds me of the, uh, and it wasn't Edgar Casey, but apparently his muses, his spirit guides, whatever you want to call them, the consciousnesses uh, that uh, communicated with him, always saying that it is foolish to collect knowledge for knowledge's sake. If you don't do anything with it, what's the point? You're wasting your time. I, it always struck me because a lot of people, yeah, we all like to do that, but do something with it. And so I think maybe that's my sense of what uh, Theodore's is saying is that you're going to get back in the library. What are you going to do with that? Well, if you just want to go bury yourself in there, fine. But he's kind of making, he's making, you know, he's, he's prodding him. He's, he's joking with him. Right. Well, anyway, this is what he was doing in the library. Okay. This is an excerpt from Steinmeier's biography on Fort detailing the book X. Yes. On May 1st, 1915, Fort sent a four-page letter to my dear Dreiser with an astonishing revelation. 
I don't know whether you are now a dealer in loud noises or not, but if you are still in the publishing or editorial calamity, I have produced some vibrations that you might like to turn loose. Charles Fort had discovered X. X was not only the title of Fort's book, it was his name for an outside motivating source that influenced all of society. In his text, Fort suggested this controlling force resided on the planet Mars. Today, this sounds like science fiction, but Percival Lowell's published observations of Mars from 1906 and 1909 were prominent in the news. Thanks to Lowell's maps of Martian canals, it was generally assumed that Mars held intelligent life. By assigning Martians particular powers or motives, Fort's speculation was particularly topical. According to Dreiser's recollection of the book, X communicated through rays and could create all things. Quote, you, me, all animals, plants, the earth and its fullness, its beauty and variety and strangeness, its joy and sorrow and terror, as well as the ecstasy of this thing we call life, end quote. Fort likened the rays to photography, similar to how light or shadow affects chemicals and creates pictures. In this case, earth was the sensitive film. Fort explained the nature of his theory. If, in acting upon us, X could only make use of what we should naturally do anyway, we should, if stimulated to action by X, think that we were but following what we call our own free wills. Then, in the search for X, we should look not for strange, seemingly supernatural phenomena, but for things that we should have done anyway, but in a lesser degree, historical events which have heretofore been accounted for by reason, but have in them somewhere a vague mystery or an atmosphere of the unaccountable, despite all the assurances of their own infallibility that our historians have given us. I shall try to show that X exists, that this influence is and must be evil to an appalling degree to us at present, evil which at least equals anything ever conceived of in medieval demonology. Mm -hmm. So he's saying there's this all knowing all powerful force emanating from Mars and controlling everything that happens on earth and that free will is an illusion. Right. Now he mentions some stories in this book that are going to become his trademark. He talks about the great wall of China going for miles under the sea. The idea that the Sphinx spent some time in salt water at some point mm -hmm. that shipmasters in the Pacific had seen some sort of mechanical vessels that had great wheels of fire or a giant that left footprints in a snowy field, blood raining from the sky. He, at this point anyway, believed what he had written, writing to Dreiser, quote, the whole thing is becoming so reasonable that it humiliates me. <laughs> right. I thought at first I had got hold of the unbelievable, end quote. To him, the fascination occurs in the most mundane ways. If it doesn't, then it's unlikely to be true. Mm -hmm. It's part and parcel of our reality, and if it doesn't happen easily, albeit without explanation, then it's likely fabricated. This was the skeptical side of his observations. And we go back to the talking dog. Right. Sure, the dog can talk, but it disappeared in a green vapor? Nope. Mm. So, <laughs> I don't, yeah, that's a line. You know, yeah, it's a bit well, of an arbitrary says, line. We all go, have our line. Yeah, we, and there's a there's a line you know across, but it, it, it's a little bit arbitrary that that owes to our own personal sense of belief. Yeah, like I said, at the at the one end of the spectrum is that nothing. There is no talking dog, right? And you look back in history of all the stories that we've covered here about uh, dogmen reported throughout history, Marco yeah. Polo even, and uh, it's like okay, they were mistaken. That's got to be something else, but it uncomfortably keeps popping up. And now yes. what do we have? We have the dogmen of Michigan. 
And we have reports of people seeing skinwalkers and dogmen and all kinds of, uh, yeah. Checkered shirts and cigarettes. There you go. That's so, the like I said, first album, but... these are inconvenient reports. You can't stifle them. But what he's saying here is that they aren't that, let's say, outrageous and that it's just, this is all just part of our experience. We just look away at some stuff that bothers us. Steinmeier points out that X, of which there are no remaining copies because Fort angrily destroyed them, Mm. had a philosophy to it that you can see back in the outcast manufacturers, which was this dark story that suggested there is no free will. There is only, quote, an outside force that simulates free will, Mm -hmm. end quote. I don't want to jump ahead, but now you're talking about the simulacrum, the the matrix you're talking about. That's exactly where I was going next. You read my mind, sir. And here, look at this too. And no one else I don't think has pointed this out, including Steinmeier. The main character in the Outcast Manufacturers, his first name is Sim. Yes. It's Sim. S-I-M. Yeah. Everything is connected. So it's the question, <laughs> is it the Matrix? This is what I'm wondering. Are we Sims? This is something that we've talked about on the show. Everybody talks right. about it. Elon Musk talks about it. Yeah. But Fort also seems to be leaning into a now discredited theory called orthogenetics that mm-hmm. suggested that there might really be a straight line of development and evolution that things don't really stray away from. Mm-hmm. Darwin's theories were already around, and but this was later shown to be wrong because of the sporadic branching of things in evolution that have now been proven. But this idea of Fort was that there was no free will, only the simulation of it. And Dreiser ate this idea, but it was somewhat ahead of its time, right? We're talking 110 years ago, folks, this simulation idea. Fort is pitching a form of something he could have never conceived of now as simulation theory. There were no computers, but what he's saying was like, and yeah, he put it on Mars, incorrect. The canals are natural. We know that now. We've heard other weird things about Mars, but Mm -hmm. still, the point is less about this force emanating from Mars. Mars could be the little kid sitting at the computer playing The Sims and controlling all our lives and choosing to turn disasters on and off or building houses and putting us inside of them that have no doors. That's the question. He was saying, is that coming from Mars? It's coming from somewhere. The point is, it's out there. So that's what I thought was interesting. But here's the other thing that Fort's saying that is significant. He posited that whatever force was behind this compunction we all have to follow a certain path, regardless of our desire to stray from it, was evil. He suggested that there was an omniscient, godlike power that was not only dangerous, but evil according to Steinmeier. So Fort was not the inventor of these kinds of ideas, but he had a very unique perspective on how they affected our perception of reality. Mm -hmm. Steinmeier also wrote that Dreiser was profoundly affected by the manuscript of X. He even had a dream about it that he made into a play. I want to read this excerpt from Steinmeier's book. It was a 15-page, one-act reading play called The Dream, first published in 1917 in a periodical called Seven Arts. Three men walk along a street in New York late one night. George Cyphers, a professor of chemistry, argues the nature of life with a professor of philosophy and a professor of physics. Cyphers efficiently states Fort's premise in X. The whole thing may have been originated somehow, somewhere else, worked out beforehand, as it were, in the brain of something or somebody and is now being orthogenetically or chemically directed from somewhere being thrown on a screen, as it were, like a moving picture. And we, mere dot pictures, mere cell-built-up pictures, like the movies, only we are telegraphed or teleautographed from somewhere else. 
Cyphers returns to his rooms, imagining that a fully equipped laboratory would allow him to test his theories. Life is really a dream, he tells himself. We are all an emanation, a shadow, a moving picture cast on a screen of ether. I'm sure of it. As Cyphers falls asleep in his bed, he dreams that he is isolated in a field, trapped in a fierce war. A score of soldiers hunt him down and surround him, drawing their guns as he cowers in the corner. He speculates that he is in the middle of a nightmare. He defies the soldiers to do your worst and prove the nature of his fantasy. They fire. Cyphers is shot and feels sure he is dying. He contemplates which state is the real dream, and the soldiers ridicule him. Mm. You may be waking into another state, but you'll be dead to this one. Mm -hmm. As the soldiers fade from view, Cyphers discovers himself waking in his bed once again. Am I dying or waking up? Which is it? Are there various worlds, one within another? Doesn't that sound like you're in the Matrix? So, And that's the play that Dreiser wrote after reading the manuscript for X, which unfortunately never got published. Right. And Dreiser tried. He took it around and introduced Fort to a lot of people, but it just, it never got out of the gate. It may have been too, I don't know, avant-garde is probably not the right word, but I feel like it was too unconventional for publishers to sign off on. Well, again, this reminds me of surrealism and, and one of our favorite painters, René Magritte. And I think the painting is called On the Threshold of Liberty, 1937. And I'd read a, uh, an explanation of this work of art in that what you see are different panels. And one is a male torso or, or female torso. In one upper left-hand corner is a female torso. Then you have a panel of wood. You have trees. You got clouds. Very Magritte-like. You got yes. just windows. And there's a cannon there. The canon is just not out of place. How do you tell which of these panels is reality? They all represent a different reality. Some kind of abstract, some clouds, those are real, or just windows, or certainly a human torso is real. The only way you find out is by firing the cannon. All right. But what if the cannon's not real? It's like, yeah. it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept, though. And then the other aspect I find interesting that Ford always alludes to is that, like I said, these things don't happen in a vacuum. Well, they could. They happen, and how we know about them or why they're important to us is because us humans are involved in how we think about it. That's another thing that he's not railing against, I guess, or, or he wants to tear down the old conventions of how we thought about this and the old prejudices. It's say, look, these things happen. How should we think about this stuff? Right. And what I find funny is that those channels on Mars that 1877, as you said, Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli observed what he called canali, channels, plural, canals. And people thought like, well, that seems like some being created those, right? Maybe they lived down there. And then eventually, and then eventually H.G. Wells wonders, well, if it's all uh, just desolate now, where did the Martians go? Maybe they come to Earth in a war of the worlds of sorts. And also... There's the character of John Carter, who is a, I think it was the Civil War era guy who uh, ends up on Mars through some kind of portal. I am a big fan of John Carter. And I there actually have yeah. something about that later in the okay. outline here. Just want to mention it before I forgot. Yeah. No, you didn't even know. Well, that's the thing. We're on the same page, my friend, as usual. That movie was a huge flop, yeah. costing hundreds of millions of dollars. And I watched it <laughs> yes, kind it of was. thinking, oh, this will be fun bad like a bad right. movie that'll be fun to watch because it was bad and i wound up really digging it 
Like I really, it's fun. It. It's yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah, no, it's fun. My point though, is that you can take something like that or a proposed reality, which is look, this is what we can see through a telescope. Anybody can look through any telescope. It's not a fake telescope. This is, this is not a magic trick. It's not a medium rattling a trumpet with their bare foot under the table. This can be really seen, but what do you do with that information? How do you interpret it? What does that mean? What do you, when you have canals, is it just erosion? Does somebody live there? And so it's, everybody takes uh, that information and heads in a different direction with it. And with a uh, fort, it's, it's meanwhile from down here on earth, this might be Fort's point, is that nobody has any better idea than anyone else. Yeah. There is only speculation from all sides of the equation. Yeah. Until we get there. Right. Which we are now. We're there right. now. And right. so you can answer but, some of those questions. But but I go, again, I'm going to restate, you know, my big finding here, which I talked about much earlier here in the show, is that I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't yeah. know. And that's, don't, that's all you're ever going to get out of me. But like I said, we'll keep striving again, not for answers. Like I said, as you see Fort going along here, it's frustrating. It's just, everything's yeah. a weirdness with no uh, satisfying conclusion, but that doesn't mean we should stop looking at it. I'm Shane in Boston. And when I'm not hanging out with my dog headed friends, I'm listening to astonishing legends. Let's get back to the show. Let's move on in Ford's literary career now to his next book that came after X, which was uh, fittingly titled Y, the letter mm. Y. So he first he X, wrote X, y. then he wrote Y, and he was working on Y before while Dreiser was still trying to help him get X published. So he didn't know X was not going to get published yet. And here's the thing about Y. My son, when he was younger, he used to say something uh, super offensive, and then right after that he would go, it's Opposites Day. After which the entire family would proceed to insult each other for a little bit till it got mm. old. But it was fun. It was fun mm. in the moment. Something that school kids play. But that's what Y was. It was the yang to X's yin. It was the counterpoint. So it was this concept that brought an equilibrium to all of the ideas in X that Forth put forth. After all, everything seeks equilibrium, right? So mm -hmm. it was a complementary civilization complimentary with the E in the middle, not the I. Uh, so in this society, gold was abundant and worthless in the world of Y, and iron was rare and priceless. And during this time, Dreiser became convinced that X needed to be a movie, by the way, and he mm. pitched mm. this idea to a company that he had uh, been paid for to come up with ideas called Mirror Films. And incredibly, his pitch for X sounded like John Carter, which you right, already brought right. up just a few yeah, seconds yeah. ago, and I was about right. to mention this, and the movie no one saw, which I, again, will stand by saying that I enjoyed it. But X Steinmeier points out saying, it sounded a lot like a paranormal version of Intolerance by filmmaker D.W. Griffith, which every film student worth their salt, including me and probably you, Forrest, has seen. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. a huge spectacle, incredibly expensive. And that's what X would have been with Egyptian pyramids, factories, war, all that stuff. By the way, when Dreiser would have been pitching this to Mirror Films, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance would come out the very next year or be shot the next year. And a little bit of a callback here, Scott. You mentioned earlier Ghostbusters. I had yes. always heard the story that Dan Aykroyd, his original idea for Ghostbusters was so much grander. And oh, like it was right. going to take, there were scenes on other planets and oh, not easily yeah. to, fabricated back then. It just would have been a, like a $200 million movie 
when movies were like 60, 70 million at the most. And so it was just unfeasible. So we had to tone it all down, but it was a, a grand idea. Yeah, I believe that, especially knowing him. Yeah. Anyway, none of this came to pass. Neither X nor Y got published. Right. Here is another excerpt from Steinmeier's book on Fort, where he references Fort's contemporaneous biographer, Damon Knight. Quoting, author Damon Knight later speculated that the excesses of X and Y were fashionable excesses of belief. Ford had written his book according to the models of the day and felt obliged to explain his oddities by constructing a complete theory. In rejecting conventional systems, Ford felt obliged to set up his own unconventional ones and defend them. He did this, I think, because he knew of no other way to write an unorthodox book. He had yet to invent his own way. Had they been published, X might well have been remembered as Rays from Mars and Y as the race at the North Pole, because in that one, I didn't mm -hmm. mention this, but the civilization is all up around the North Pole. Both joining the ranks of the great crank books, mm -hmm. Delia Bacon finding coded messages in Shakespeare, Charles Piazzi Smith measuring the pyramids, Ignatius Donnelly describing the culture of Atlantis. Two so, of those people we've mentioned before. Oh, many, many times. Uh, so uh, here I have a little tangent. You know how we were interspersing some of Fort's quotes into the story? Yeah, yeah. One of the ones that I wanted to include, which I loved, was peasants have believed in dowsing, and scientists used to believe that dowsing was only a belief of peasants. Now there are so many scientists who believe in dowsing that the suspicion comes to me that it may only be a myth after all. Right. It's too popular now. Now yeah. it's too popular. Yeah. I liked that band before they got big. But right. I love this quote. And it may have been more true in Fort's lifetime mm -hmm. than it is these days. It, like there was probably a consideration of dowsing then. I feel like right now it's on the outs again. Or so I thought. Now, I only came across this quote yesterday as we're recording this. Today mm -hmm. is March. Well, now it's two, almost two in the morning for me. So it's March 25th. I came across the quote that I just read on the 23rd. Then, after Forrest and I recorded into the evening on the night of the 23rd, I was doom scrolling the news, trying to get sleepy, which is very difficult to do after a recording session in most cases. When in my Apple News app on my iPhone, I saw an article that had been published just seven days earlier by a website called themarshallproject.org. The headline is, He Teaches Police Witching to Find Corpses. And witching was in quotes. Mm -hmm. Experts are alarmed. And then the subheading. At the National Forensic Academy, crime scene investigators learn to douse for the dead, though it's not backed by science. Right. The article is written by Renee Ebersol. Now, I'd not heard of the Marshall Project, but it bills itself as a nonprofit journalism, I guess, website about or blog about criminal justice. It's a beautiful website, very well put together, graphically laid out. They survive on donations, so if you follow the link from our show notes and enjoy the articles or others, we encourage you to donate. Now, I'm not going to read the whole article here, but here's what I will say. It's about teaching forensic investigators on the body farms that we've all heard of in Virginia, near Quantico, and wherever they do all that stuff, I think. At least I think that's where this one is. And yeah. Uh, is to douse to find dead bodies. All right, so I want to read this excerpt from Ebersol's piece. Uh, it's referring to... Uh, a, a gentleman in the story, Vass, his last name, V-A-S-S. Vass, a 62-year-old wearing a blue CSI Death Valley cap, is teaching his students witching, a.k.a. divining or dowsing. It's a centuries-old practice in which a person walks a straight line holding two bent pieces of metal or sometimes a Y-shaped twig until they signal the presence of whatever is being sought underground. Water witches douse for groundwater. Others use divining rods for seeking precious gems, oil, gold, or, as in this case, human remains. 
Dowsing for the Dead is not exactly endorsed by scientists or forensic experts, but it is a highlight for some students attending the National Forensic Academy, a 10-week training program sponsored by the University of Tennessee. Since the Academy's inaugural class 20 years ago, school administrators say more than 1,200 crime scene investigators from agencies in 49 U.S. states and five foreign countries have attended the program, which currently costs students $12,000. The Washington Post once nicknamed the Academy, quote, the Harvard of hellish violence, end quote. And students now wear that slogan on their t-shirts as they analyze bloodstain patterns and fingerprint corpses. So that's one little section I want to read. Yeah. Here's another one. They are also concerned about the repercussions for criminal justice at a time when many mainstream forensic techniques have proven to be unreliable, including blood spatter patterns, bite mark comparisons, and faulty interrogation techniques. In the last two decades, hundreds of cases built on these methods have been overturned by DNA evidence. In 2009, a report by the National Academy of Sciences concluded that nuclear DNA analysis is the only forensic technique that can support claims in court that evidence matches a specific individual or source. So while dowsing for the dead may seem particularly wacky, it's just the most extreme example of a problem afflicting the forensic practices many Americans have seen touted on television for years, says Randy Shrewsbury, a retired police officer who founded the nonprofit Institute for Criminal Justice Training Reform. Law enforcement regularly accepts the flaws of these practices, despite the life-altering impacts that can occur when they're wrong, end quote. In particular, some experts are distressed that a vast trainee recently got witching results admitted as evidence in a Georgia murder trial. This could set a legal precedent and allow witching-based evidence to be used in other cases, says Chris Fabricant, a leading attorney for the Innocence Project, which works to exonerate wrongly convicted prisoners. Quote, the search for the truth is never advanced through junk science, end quote. Which is dowsing as, of course, junk science. Yeah. And then last, my favorite quote from the article, in defense of using this method, Jason Jones, a forensic training specialist with the Academy, wrote in an email adding that witching doesn't create false evidence. Quote, you either find the remains or you don't. You are not trying to alter anything, end quote. Yeah. I could not have stumbled across a more perfect article <laughs> right. five days after it was published to match up with this 14 quote about dowsing from 100 years ago mm -hmm. and the timing of our release of this episode, all just serendipitous. But I mean, this conversation is still happening and it's still the argument right. between right. the science and the non-science. But my takeaway from this is somebody who watches a lot of true crime, and obviously everybody does because it's the biggest podcast category that exists. Mm. They listen to it. We all watch it. My wife and I watch it. We listen to it at night ourselves. You go through all this and you routinely find the blood spatter experts, the the bite mark analysis, yeah. all that stuff can easily be wrong or mistaken. Right. And you, you always see these experts who are coming in, they get $1,000 an hour to sit on the stand and they're going to say whatever the prosecution wants them to say. And then the other one's going to come in who has the same expertise and say whatever the defense wants them to say. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is, it gets at the whole heart of everything Fort was saying about the confirmation bias built into the scientific method. Yeah. It's all right there laid out in this one discussion, in my opinion. Right. Somebody can see that. It's like, well, dowsing is junk science. It's not accepted. They don't know how it works. Don't even bother. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous yeah. to use. It should not be used. 
But what's the harm in that? You either find the body or you don't. You found it or you didn't. It's not the same thing as saying this blood spatter proves that right. so-and-so killed somebody and should be electrocuted or whatever. No, well, here's the point what, what people jump to is that, yeah. well, that practice, the methodology is ridiculous, worthless, non-scientific, pseudo-scientific, just pseudo-pseudo. And so therefore, anything you find with it is got to be garbage too. What the reality is, the logic of it actually, and again, that's why I said, uh, did I say this last episode? Maybe. People want to jumble things together. You know what I'm saying? They want to group things together. So if you find it with dowsing, it's ridiculous, whatever results right. you get. Well, if you use dowsing, somehow uh, six feet down, you find human remains. Well, the, the dowsing rods didn't create the human remains. Right. I, I think the worst you could say is that that person just guessed and got lucky. And I think that's, you know, they would say... It's like the knock and anything else with psychic or woo-woo abilities. People say like, well, that's, it's no better than guessing. And here's the one thing I'll say, the skeptical, the opposite right. side of me, which people think died a long time ago, <laughs> but it didn't, yeah. is yeah. if you're dowsing for bodies on a body farm, you probably got a better chance of accidentally getting it right than you do right. looking for an actual murder victim out in the great expanse of right. whatever continent, pick your continent. Right. So. Two things here. It's the, the one thing is that, no, the, the, Evidence, obviously, especially in crimes, unless it was just sloppy, is that it's deliberately trying to be hidden, and yeah. yet you found it. And in, in this case, though, it's like I said, you, you do the DNA because it's like the dowsing rods didn't manufacture the, the bones. You do the DNA analysis on it, and you can tell, like, well, that's the missing person, and there's some other ev DNA evidence which points to this dude who probably did it, and right. then that connects them. Well, the woo-woo didn't invent that. It just made the connection, which what we always say about the placebo effect. If you're suffering and you took a sugar pill, but you got cured, what's the, the difference? Why You can't count on that for everybody. But I think it's hard to argue with results. There's an old uh, Cuban saying, a friend of mine, uh, my friend Ceci, who I used to work with, uh, she told me about. And so I, I can't vouch for this. She just told it to me once and I always remembered it. The person criticizing someone for doing something impossible should not get in the way of the person actually doing it. Okay, does that make sense? And that uh, somebody yeah, says, that can't be done. It's thing. like, well, yeah. I'm actually doing it. So your argument is flawed. And it's right. like, this is right. what I'm thinking about. It's the trout in the milk. It's circumstantial, but it's like, well, somebody put it there. <laughs> somebody, yeah. it didn't just materialize in the milk. There's a reason for it. trout can breathe in milk. Or if they could, in skim milk, maybe, I wonder if a trout could breathe. That's a good question. I wondered about that myself. My point about it is that it's undeniable. That's what the point of that saying is that it's undeniable. Somebody put it in there and it's hard to ignore. Obviously, weird stuff happens. You can't deny it. And if you find it, it doesn't matter how you found it. It just happened. The logic says, even if you're guessing... And this point here, and I think what's funny is that I see a lot of people argue, it's like, well, it's not 100% effective, so it's not a real thing. Right. You're only good maybe, what, 50% of the time with the dowsing rod? It's like, that's better than 20% of the time. <laughs> like Overall, I think we're, we're making all the same points. We're mm -hmm. on the same track here, and we're aligned with our supernatural father, Mr. Fort, as, and, and society still talking about the questions that he had all those years ago. Well, now we come back around to the book that anyone who knows Charles Fort has heard of, the book he initially thought of as Z, of course, mm -hmm. you know, what follows X and Y, Z. Right. Steinmeier wrote this about Z in his biography on Charles Fort. Z was only the simplest, most obvious working title for the new book. For his next project, he considered researching psychic phenomena. 
quote, things that have been called souls and spirits, end quote. He wrote to Dreiser of his intentions. Mine is a coarse and more cynical mind than those that have heretofore examined such phenomena. Also, it has some other qualities and a different attitude towards what is called the scientific method. A cynical book about such phenomena implies a skeptical tone, but we don't know Fort's intention as his skepticism was remarkably fluid and even-handed. He could be equally skeptical of the occult, the scientific method, philosophy, analysis, great thinkers, and even his own judgments. When he first considered the subject, Fort conducted his own psychic experiments as he walked to the library on 42nd Street. He would attempt to predict what was in a store window on the block ahead. Quote, turkey tracks in red snow, end quote, he once said to himself. When he looked into the window, he saw groups of black fountain pens grouped in triangles like bird tracks against a pink cardboard background. I was a wizard, Fort mm. marveled for one afternoon. Unfortunately, he admitted that his experiments kept up about a month. Out of a thousand attempts, I can record only three seeming striking successes. Mm -hmm. So he's critical of himself. He's critical of his own experiments. But still, that's still pretty amazing to get something that specific about that one shop window, for example. Right. And so my thought there was like, it's almost like a little bit what you, you learn about um, a little bit of associative remote viewing or what, mm -hmm. like he had a very unrefined possible psychic gift or psychical gift. Imagine if he had tried to develop that or imagine if we all did. What if, what if right. we all have it? And we just don't know how to use it. Well, that's know? the point of, of CRV and that you don't yes. just like walk down the street and just, was it a thousand times? What were the other guesses? Everything has to be documented and it's like, because yes. everything matters. Was it right. the time of day? What did you have for lunch? How were you feeling? Were you really upset? Do you guess better when you're upset? Do you guess better when you're calm? These are all factors that the military wanted nailed down and yes. they wanted a process that could be repeatable. That's how they think. And that's, yes, that's uh, part of the scientific method. It has to be repeatable under the same conditions. Then it means something. My point here though, is that forget all of that. Yeah. What if you had out of a thousand times, you had three things that rocked your world so bad, it just shook your belief to the core. Yeah. And, how did I figure that out? And that's what Michael Shermer talks about in that article. It's like he was, his skepticism was shook to the core because it was so profound and emotional and it shook his wife to the core because it was very personal and it was very meaningful. And it's like, well, yeah, you can deny that. And then like, yeah, it's just a coincidence. A yes, weird one. That, that, is that article, I presume you're, you're talking about, uh, yeah, and scientific the, American with Michael yeah. Shermer and, yeah. uh, we've talked about it quite a bit and it has so much context to it. Maybe if you try to do that a thousand times before it didn't work, but that one time is so profound. It doesn't mean the other, the other thousand it nullifies times. all the times. That yeah. And yeah. so, like I said, that when he's describing like, that could be a good guess. And you just make an association. Like I said, the pens arranged as a, like a turkey track, you know, with three, I think, and then with the, with the back foot or the back toe against pink cardboard. It's not spot on, you know, it's an interpretation. And I would say, uh, he probably said it himself. It's like, well, if he told me that, it's like, it's not exact. Right. But does that have meaning to you? Uh, well, that's for you to decide. And how, how close is it? Because again, we've, we've done this with each other. <laughs> like this happened or no, that like the, the broom handle fell against the wall. It's like, uh, all right, maybe you're just. You always by. bring up that broom handle. No, because that was the but first that time. Night I think, was, I think, it was a series of really bizarre stuff happening. Here's okay. Here's me. the difference. I would say in in it because I readily admit it's perception. 
So what was funny is that Scott, you know, uh, it was late where you are at your uh, your home at the time in Pennsylvania, and the the broom handle falls over, and uh, you excitedly sent me this clip of video. I was like, well, that is weird, but again, from my perspective, it's like I'm not there, right? I didn't see it happen. I don't know how the broom was sitting. You told me all the specifics, and to, I believe to you it was suspect. Well, it was directly related to a series of events connected to a very close friend I was reminiscing about who had recently committed suicide. Exactly. And on top of that, leading up to the broom falling over in the house, which was a very stable house on firm ground, no traffic, no nothing in the middle of nowhere, I was listening to music on a 500-disc jukebox CD changer. The song that had just come up before the broom handle went off was one that my friend actually produced the music video for one in 500 discs the track which i know that my friend worked on because i used to cut music videos for this person sure sure and then shortly after that the broom fell over so okay. i'm just saying i want to give the context as you're saying that's yeah. what i'm saying is that there's there is greater context now that jukebox right with a 500 discs in it yeah before that happened it had that disc in it right it didn't play yeah. a song for which there was no disc Right. Okay. Like I said, there's degrees of the impossible and yeah. the most the fantastical. And so you could say, well, yeah, there you go. It's just a coincidence. Times 10, 5, 000, there's 5,000, at least 6,000 songs in there. Sure, sure. And of the ones that my friend produced a music video for, maybe two or three. The real skeptical, it's like, well, it's just a coincidence. But to you, this is the thing. It has meaning because it was all in context with some other stuff that happened. Now, yeah. what I will say that's different is I was standing next to you after we got done recording in a, uh, at a late night. And I think we're kind of wrapping stuff up. I think we were celebrating with a beer or a bourbon or something. We're standing on your porch. We were looking at something you had, I saw you lay down the iPad on the yes. railing, which is a two by six, right? Oh, I'm glad you brought this up. Okay. You know what? We should talk about this on the next junk drawer. We can share that video with There it. you go, folks. Because I have that video. And here's the thing. I was right there. Now I saw him set the, the iPad down. It wasn't Here's how physics works, or should, if the iPad is less than 50%, half of it, centered over the railing, then it, if it falls over, well, there you go. That's gravity taking over, right? That just, yeah, it's halfway down. Yeah. You know, this railing's about, I don't know, four feet up. But I saw the iPad, and it was more than halfway, a good, uh, good two-thirds of it was over the center of the railing. So, yeah, so out of a, what's an, how an iPad's what, eight inches tall? Yeah. A good, was a while back. Yeah, a good, like, like yeah, whatever it is. Let's say one, yeah. in, in percentages, a good six inches of it or or more is over the railing. And maybe four inches, uh, let's say it's 10 inches, four inches is sticking over the railing. The point being is that that shouldn't have happened. And that's why we both looked at each other. And, it, and of course, uh, it wasn't broken. It didn't. If it landed on its edge, it would have uh, probably cracked the glass and ruined the iPad. It didn't. It just fell flat and made a big, whoop, you know. Yeah. And we just looked it's at weird. each other. It's like that. That wasn't. And you start. To, that's what I'm saying. It's like everything that happens. It's like. But the see, for you, part. that's where your line is. Like for me, I had this. Yeah. You're kind of poo-pooing my thing, and then you're no, like, no. Yeah, all but I'm what saying about is the iPad. No, no. What, all I'm saying is I was there. That's how yes. people judge. You these were things. there, but there was yeah. no context to that. That house wasn't. Didn't have a. I mean, aside from the EVP I got when I said. If anything is here, who are you or what are you? And the EVP says, I can't tell. Yeah, so <laughs> okay. That was Look, that house. So this is the nature of all these things. This is what Fort was talking about is that these things happened. They were reported. Somebody saw them. But how you approach, how do you think about them 
yeah. is still very personal. Like I said, I, I don't doubt you at all. You tell me that's the truth. All I can say is that one time I was there and I know that that shouldn't have happened, but it did. I saw yes. it. It happened at our feet. I can't comment on the broom handle falling because I wasn't there. All right. Well, let's let's move on to the close of part one here. That was a good old fashioned, old school. Yeah, we're getting to there, the end of this. We and... retold stories we've told a bunch of times. And I guess I, you know what, with the iPad video, if enough people are interested in it, right. I will dig it up. I do have it. That video falling off the railing, right. and I will post it on social media if enough people ask about it. Mm -hmm. Coming back around to Charles Ford and his series of books and book X and book Y and book Z and X and Y not getting published, Z had a better future ahead of it. Z was more than just the third book after two that were never to be published. It was the book that would define not only how the world would regard Charles Ford's work going forward and Charles Ford the writer, but Charles Ford the man mm -hmm. in Enigma. So we're going to leave you tonight with an excerpt from the beginning of the manuscript he initially called Z, but is now known as The Book of the Damned. A Procession of the Damned. By the damned, I mean the excluded. We shall have a procession of data that science has excluded. Battalions of the accursed, captained by pallid data that I have exhumed, will march. You'll read them, or they'll march. Some of them livid, and some of them fiery, and some of them rotten. Some of them are corpses, skeletons, mummies, twitching, tottering, animated by companions that have been damned alive. There are giants that will walk by, though sound asleep. There are things that are theorems, and things that are rags. They'll go by, like you could, arm in arm with the spirit of anarchy. Here and there will foot little harlots. Many are clowns, but many are of the highest respectability. Some are assassins. There are pale stenches and gaunt superstitions and mere shadows and lively malices, whims and amiabilities, the naive and the pedantic and the bizarre and the grotesque and the sincere and the insincere, the profound and the puerile. A stab and a laugh and the patiently folded hands of hopeless propriety. The ultra-respectable, but the condemned anyway. That's going to wrap up part one of our series on our supernatural father, Charles Hoy Fort. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. Meanwhile, visit patreon.com slash astonishing legends to get access to our exclusive bi-weekly junk drawer show that runs every week the main show is dark. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Shane Morena. I understand. I understand. I understand this. Oh, you want me to make something up? Sierra, Alpha, Romeo, Alpha, H. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. 
Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.